I have seen the doom of man. It is written in the stars, an omen born upon the twin-tailed comet that blazes bright across the firmament. The barbarous tribes of the north will see it as a sign of their final victory over the world. Yet the children of the Heldenhammer shall look upon it in hope and fear alike. Hope, that it heralds the return of their most glorious champion. Fear, that it signals the death of all their kind has achieved. And they are right to do so. In the north, foul hordes flock to the banner of the three-eyed king. Like blood pulsing from a wound in the world's crown, they march south to bring the touch of chaos to all. The ever-chosen warlords shall plunge their blades deep into the civilized realms, looting fallen empires for their own glory. Brothers three shall bring low the empire of man. It is they who will muster the plague-kissed in their master's name. It is they who will cast the curse of unbound life, a curse that will bring primal disorder to the world of hard-won progress. United, the lords of disease shall bring the old world to the brink of ruin. Ruin from within and from without. All things clean and true shall sicken and fade. The gods of man shall fade with them, until only death holds the key to salvation. These are the end times. Welcome to the Garage, you tools. For the next three hours, or however long it takes, we're going to do the best we can to inform, entertain, and perhaps have a laugh or two along the way. Bringing you Otto, Ethrek, and Girk, I'm Chris Hugh. And I'm the one who knocks. And with us today is... The man himself, Chris Tomlin. Hey. Hey. How's it going? Good, Chris. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. Great to be back on. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And uh, hey, look, it's the three. Oh. (laughs) Otto, Ethrock, and Girk. Oh, Who's who? I I I guess I'm Girk. Well, he's, he was the one who was handsome beforehand, wasn't he? So. That's right. Yeah, I, I was the cutie pie up until up <laughs> until I got morbidly obese. There we go. I can work oh, yeah. with this. Okay, so, oh boy. Chris, welcome back. Yeah, like I say, thanks for having me. It was, it was an absolute blast last time. I know I got a bit lost with it thinking I was just listening to an episode of Garage Channel. <laughs> <laughs> It was a lot of fun, and the feedback seemed to be decent as well. So hopefully, um, we can do just as good a job this time. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot to cover. Glotkin wise, a lot has happened in this book, so I'm anxious to dig in and uh, you know sink our teeth into the rotting flesh and really dig out the details. So, uh, without any further ado, then I guess we should jump into it. Uh, as usual, folks, we're going to be skipping all the regular stuff. So all of the voicemails, we got some from England. We got more more voicemails from the Jake-Off. The Jake-Off continues. That's all going to have to wait until the uh, <laughs> until we get back because today it's all Glotkin. So I guess I'm starting this one. Chapter one here, right? Here we go. Where's my notes? This is some exciting stuff. Now, it starts off again with the, with the nice little uh, Warhammer intro. These are the end times. This is all coming in. Archaon uh, is the most blessed mortal ever by the Dark Gods. And he's still waiting, sitting in his chair, still waiting. Biding his time. Yeah. He knows how often these invasions end in failure. He knows he's got to keep the elder races separate, uh, meaning he's he's really got to make sure to keep the elves, dwarves, and men from uniting. He goes, if they unite, then he's screwed. 
and uh, he knows if he can that he knows that what's keeping the the glue here is the Empire of Man, because the elves sort of deal with them. The dwarves are friendly with them. Elves and dwarves, not so much. If he can take out the Empire of Man, he can uh, break this all apart. Um, he's not going to fall prey to overconfidence. He's gonna, and he's he knows what he knows what to do. He's gonna send in Nurgle because nothing weakens frail humans better than disease. So that's the big plan for this book. And I gotta say, I really like this book, guys. Like. I liked it a lot. I know some people didn't think it was as good. Um, I thought there was there was not as much repetitiveness in this book as there was in uh, in Nagash. In Nagash, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a lot of that's around the battles, isn't it? As as we covered last time, the the undead versus undead battles aren't always the most um, entertaining to read about. So I think there was a bit more in here. Um, as I'm sure we'll get on to, my main concern with this book is the introduction of a lot of new uh, named characters who we, we don't know anything about before. So it has to contend with introducing and building them up as characters in their own right, as well as doing the storytelling. So I, I think it slightly fell down a little bit there, but it definitely builds to um, some very, very exciting uh, end game as we'll, as we'll find out. Interesting. Yeah, some of the characters that you refer to... I guess we'll cover it. Um. They get a little more coverage in in the second book with the rules. They all get their little story, but right. yeah, you're to, to build them up to the point where we care about them. I think you're kind of right, Chris. It does. It, they they did kind of just throw a bunch of people in on us. Yeah, you've essentially got five new special characters. Well, I suppose uh, seven if you want to count the Glockin all individually. And they do they do bring some individuality to them, um, but it, it sort of takes a little while to get into it. And I feel that's some of the benefit with the other two end times books is these are well uh, well established characters we already know and care about or dislike you know we have some emotional attachment to them one way or another and we sort of have to build that emotional attachment one way um as we're reading through this one which i th- i think for me was difficult in part it it took some time i think i think some characters the the glycan particularly were built up well over time some others i feel like were very much from the get go supporting characters the uh what do you call them the um maggot lords there yeah. yeah they were i mean i wanted to hear more about them they, they seem really cool I, I love the models for them and yeah. I, I, think I just wanted a bit more but they lived forever they're so they're they're worth any 12 men and then they're gone yeah i mean you know gut rot fume gets a little bit more coverage and we we find a little bit more about him and see him a bit more but yeah, I think as, as, um, Chris says, that the Glocken themselves certainly do, um, become, uh, th- their own characters, especially Otto. I think by the end, he's, um, he's someone I definitely want to hear more about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into this here. Um, oh, and the prize at stake, the total annihilation of the world, which Archeon intends to seize. So, uh, quick recap. Talea and Astalia are lost to the Skaven. Um, humans finally admit admit that they exist. They have recognized that the Skaven are there and are a thing. Uh, and in vast numbers. Uh, Sylvania is still in darkness. Nagash at this point is reborn as we're jumping through the, you know, the timeline, kind of jumping back and forth. Uh, he's still stealing all the death magic. Cakes Nehekara. Mortarks are working inside the Empire. Vlad is, I like, I love Vlad. Vlad's getting a lot of screen time here. And uh, and I love what's going on with him. 
uh, it's like finally this character who's actually pretty cool is getting sort of what he's been his due rights. Yeah, right what now. he's been trying to get. Uh, Kislev's totally gone. The Elector Counts send the armies north. Uh, Karl Franz is believed lost. Kurt Helborg is back in Altdorf, and the politicians are all jumping in trying to push their little personal political agendas. And I like this because, in the, I mean, whenever the emperor shows up, you get to see how his political acumen is really cool. Now that he's not there and they got to stick someone else in the job, now you're really getting to see, <laughs> I think, how good he was. Um, Helborg is really just like, ugh. This sucks. You know, he's like, this is hard. Well, he's a soldier. He's not a politician. Right. And he is just not happy at all with the way things are going. I think it was cool. Um, Helborg is another character that I think they really fleshed out well. Yeah. And he's got a book with um, Schwartzhelm, uh, two, a, two, a pair of Black Library, like a not a trilogy, but a biology. Okay. <laughs> is that what it's called? I don't know. It's two. Duology? Um, duology. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, th- those are actually really good. Hey, did anyone else? Is anyone else wondering where the hell did did Ludwig Schwartzhelm die? Did I miss that? I mean, uh, he is the he is the battle standard bearer. When the army ran, he he has to stay behind and die by game rules. But as far as fluff goes, where the hell is he? Yeah, me and uh, me and Scott were talking about this because obviously he's a, he's a massive Empire fan, and he was a little bit perplexed by the lack of um, of him in, in this. So yeah. I'm not sure. Did did he die? I, I don't know. I, I wasn't aware that happened, no. Well, Didn't he, see. At the end of Nagash, he was trying to go get the Emperor, and Helborg had to hit him over the head and knock him out to get him, because he wasn't going to leave the Emperor. And he's like, well, you're going to die. And he's like, I don't care, I have to get the Emperor. And they knocked him out and dragged him off. And we haven't seen him since. And I'm, that is a huge oversight in the book, in my opinion, because I love that character. And I'm like, he should be somewhere. You know? Maybe they'll circle back and you know write in a little passage. And Schwartzholm awoke and found himself in a cave. Yeah. <laughs> he shows up double Schwartzholm. <laughs> Epic Schwartzholm. So your so. Schwartz is as big as mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Graf Boris Toddbringer uh, draws every sword in Middenheim on Kazrak One-Eye. Uh, some people want to uh, go after Elvin and Dwarvish he- uh, help. Uh, basically, everything is in trouble. Oh, you know, I like I like uh, Graf Boris Todbringer. Todbringer, uh, I believe that's German for Deathbringer. So hmm. uh, he's obviously a, a pretty nice and violent character here. But that's all just the quick rushing introduction. So let's run through that now. Um. I love the beginning of chapter one here with a thousand shamans and a hundred thousand demons singing to the dark gods. Um, and the the winds from the heading south with this song, people who are inclined to be sort of under the influence of chaos, they hear this song and they just go nuts. Um. And Archeon, like, he knows that all the gods have blessed, you know, each god has their own blessed champions, but he doesn't really trust the particular champions with the plan. Like, he's afraid, you know, he knows that the gods sort of play against each other, and he doesn't want any one of these guys trying to grab too much glory and screw up the overall plan. He's got Valkia and Nagaroth. He's got Sigvald and Kislev. uh, Village the Curslings in the south. Uh, he's got them on very small, specific assignments. Only Nurgle has no leader. 
uh, because uh, that's when uh, Festac Cran uh, is dead. Who's Festac Cran? Did I miss this? Was that from the first book? Yeah, he's, he was. He's not really a, a known character or anything. He was just the, the give. It was just a given name, really, wasn't it? For the the warlord leading the attack on the Auric Bastion, I think. Okay, so mm-hmm. he's got. So this guy's dead. Archeon needs Nurgle if he's going to succeed. He's got to have all four gods. This has to work the right way. And so he needs a champion. He's got lots of candidates, but he needs like a true believer. Uh, Kugath Plaguefather shows up with three jars of plague that will affect the people, the land, and the sky. And so, let's see. And all of a sudden, Archeon, it just clicks. This guy shows up with three jars. I know three brothers that are dedicated to three jars, three brothers. He sees the numbers. He gets the, the, the feeling, and uh, he sends off, and he basically he goes to get the Glotkin. Himself, personally, which I kind of liked. He didn't send for them. Mm. He's going to get them. So he makes a plan. He's going to send three armies in as a vanguard, and each army is going to have a, a, a jar. He's, he, he's ready. He, once again, he's like, you know, let the impatient, anyone who wants to go in the vanguard, let him go. All the impatient uh, warlords, all the ones who are like, we need to fight. What are we waiting around for? Anyone who's not patient enough to wait with him, let him go. And if they die, I don't need them. Uh, this is a whole theme from the first book. I like that. I like that he's being... I mean, I know people have been sort of making fun. Uh, you know, it's the end times. Where's Archeon? But he's not uh, He's not going out. He's not putting his head out, his neck out too fast. He's he's, he's amassing his forces and, and timing it, right? Yeah, he's getting it all together the way it's supposed to be, which I think is is just top-notch. So... Gives us it gives us some good anticipation for for when we finally get to see Archeon come into action as well, doesn't it? It's, it sort of builds yeah. builds up a bit more as well, and leads me to believe it's not going to end with a headbutt. But that's another story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's a win win for him. If the brothers Glot do really well, then they'll go kick some of the Empire butt, and then he'll just hurry on in and deal the death blow and win the day. Uh, if they go in there weak and everything and lose. Well, the plagues have still weakened them, which leaves the Empire in a weakened position, ready for him to come in. It'll be a harder slog if they don't win. But he's still, I mean, it's a win-win for him either way. And if they do weaken it and then they leave, then he's got nobody to contend with for glory. So, always got these. He's playing the angles, all the angles. Uh-huh. And this is where Kurgoth Plague Father visits Dr. Festus. And I, I, you know, I guess I didn't read the demon book close enough. I just, I thought Doctor Festus was another demon, but he is aspiring to demonhood. He is still. That's not. what I thought too. So he's a, a human yeah. that's been mutated. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, he's on his way. He's like, you sure. know, he's he's like one step short because you see him. He's all bloated Grotesque. and weird looking. Yeah, supernatural looking. I just assumed he was a demon, but then again, the Glotkin aren't demons either. I guess he's just favored by Nurgle. True champions. Yeah. I love the back and forth and the little sidebars. There's going to be a lot of that for the fluff stuff for this story. Is yeah, that, those were actually pretty good. And it, it, it's funny because from that perspective, it's almost they're jovial with each other. You know, like almost like uh, you Papa know happy Nurgle. coworkers. Yeah. Papa Nurgle loves his children. They're all doing their jobs. Nurgle's always sort of been portrayed in that way. And these little these little sidebars with uh, Festus in, I've, I think they're one of the highlights of the book. They're they're hilariously disgusting <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah they are they are um, it makes you feel a bit icky at times <laughs> 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 but, um, they're, they're funny they they good yeah i like those bits a lot 
So we get to this part, and the Red Reavers are attacking the Glotkin. So you've got a bunch of these kind of cornate warriors. Yeah, yeah. and they're all, of course they've all, they're always fighting against sure. each other. So you've got Otto, who's the warrior, Gurk, who's the beast, and Ethrak, who's the wizard, and they're fighting, and they're just I mean. <laughs> They're, they're the the Glodkins seem to be having a fun time of it. Like, oh, these guys are all kill, kill. They're just like, yeah, let's do this. And then there's the loud enough. And of course, everybody stops. And there's Archeon, and everyone they know they know who he is. And so it's it's time, it's time to stop. So uh, he's like, hey, uh, I want you guys to go, and they say yes. Which is great because that's the that's the opening to every game of Dungeons and Dragons I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> Some powerful guy shows up and says, "I got a job for you. You can get riches and glory." And you say, "Okay." So <laughs> here we go. Uh, they go back to the Fjording tribe. Uh, now that they're champion of Nurgle, they're the head of these armies. Um, he gets there, and Eofric the giant is there, and. He comes up, oh, I've been waiting for you guys, going to tell you. And he just, and uh, Otto just takes his scythe and cuts his head off. Swoomp, dead giant, now I'm in charge. They put the giant's head on a pike, and Girk eats the body. Uh, and I love this. All of the tribe shamans saw that they were coming, so they just waited for him to get rid of the giant. And then they just, everybody is flocking to the Glotkin banner. Um, yeah, I, okay. Side note, and I just you know chime in on this guy, but I I just love I love how the the I love the brotherness between them. Mm-hmm. I know, like Chris said, it didn't have time to develop, but you get to see it here. You know, Ethrax the smartest, and he loves talking and using big words that his other brothers don't understand. Right. You know, Otto's the oldest, uh, and you know, as with any story you hear with twins or triplets, he's the oldest by seconds and never lets them forget it that he's the oldest. Um. And then he sees himself as the leader. I'm the oldest. I'm the toughest. I'm the leader. And then you get Gurk, who is the tiniest and the cutest, and now he's this rumbling beast. Uh huh. Did you guys read the description uh, in the other book of the of these three characters? Sort of the the, the background that I, describes their genesis. I did read it, but I, I just read it the one time. I wasn't paying. So I, I, I guess their parents. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Their their parents were missionaries. Uh, the father was a farmer, and the mother was uh, what it sounds like a life uh, mage. So they traveled to the the Norskin lands to mm-hmm. help, um, uh, you know, educate these people, teach them how to farm the land, and then you know, use the magic to sort of uh, make life more livable there. But they eventually uh, were slaughtered by uh, you know local warriors, and the kids infected, and they became enraged and wanted revenge, and that's sort of how Nurgle got in there and, and infected them to make them what they are now. Nice, always I twisting was, the yeah, twisting yeah. the uh, the. I like that, and the I, I like that you go for the life mage because Nurgle really, even though it's decay, everything I mean, he's constantly mm. growing new things, new poisons, new new pestilence, new. It's things kind of the cycle been. of life yeah. and death. You can't have one without the other. Exactly. Tomlin, don't forget you're on the show. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, seriously, speak up whenever you want, man. Because, but uh, so then I like the the ally with gut rot spume, the Lord of Tentacles, and I kind of like this character. Like the model's a little weird. Like I'm I'm never 100 percent certain how I like it. Like I see some really good paint jobs and I like it, mm-hmm. and then I see some others. And I'm like, oh, it just seems kind of weird. I like it. I like I like the whole tentacle approach. Yeah, that's very uh, anime anime hentai. 
Inspired. So, yeah. So they go over to him and they bring him a vortex beast to sacrifice. Yeah. Here, have one of these. <laughs> the worst thing in the army. Uh, right. <laughs> well, not according to the fluff. Fluff-wise, you know, you go anywhere near it and they go crazy. It melts your brain. Yeah, melt your brain. So, um, but they bring it to him, this huge beast, uh, and he joins him with several child, thousand troops and a huge fleet. So we got another giant boat fleet. And I like the Nurgle one, just like the undead one. It's just like, yeah, it's full of holes and rotting, but it it's, it won't sink. There's just layers of skin and gunk over it. Well, some, just, it sounds like some of them, the holes are sort of living or decaying flesh. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty gross but pretty cool fleet. But another one that looks all rotted, and you're like, how does that even stay afloat? Because he's, he's, he's quite an important character for that because the fleet does play a big part in their overall plan, really. So yeah. Um, I don't know. Is he... Because in Dreadfleet, there was a Nurgly thing, wasn't there? I, I don't suppose it's, he's linked from that, is he? I don't all? think it's him. Uh, you know, but I mean, they had something for everything in Dreadfleet. Every time you get on the water, you could relate it back to Dreadfleet. But, mm-hmm. you know, nobody nobody played it enough times to actually know anything about... And they didn't, you know, give you re- any real fluff on your boats or your characters or anything like that, so... Could have been so much fun. So... <laughs> So, okay, every tribe for a hundred leagues has shown up, okay? Uh, the last to arrive are the Maggot Riders. Uh, now, I like the Maggot Riders. You got uh, Orgot Demon Spew in the lead, and um, the Glotkin give him the the charge. And I think he's called Demon Spew. He's got, like, his veins are full of, like, demonic poison or something like that. Mm. Like, he bleeds on people, and it hurts them. That's what they call him, this demon spew. Like, even his spit is, like, poisonous and nasty. So he's just got this thing. It's sizzling in sulfurous blood, as they describe it. It's like, ugh. Well, kind of like, it reminds me of aliens. A little bit. Alien blood. Acid yeah. for blood. Yeah. And so they're going to attack from the east. Um, then you got Gut Rot Spume's plague ship, the Rotten Beast. And then... Um, I love this. The god, the Gladkin around the ship called the Green Wolf. Uh, something fleshy is pulsing in the gaps on the sides of Gutrot Spume's ship, the Rotten Beast. So there's either something in there or just something made up that just kind of fills in the gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's grisly. You just go buy those cans of that spray stuff that you could spray on the screen door and then and then be on the on the lake. That's just ugh, this is so gross. <laughs> this is gross. Uh, so then they're go- now they're going into the Sea of Claws. They've got Dark Elves to the north, High Elves to the south. And now Otto and Ethrak are like, okay, let's just go through careful. Let's go through careful. Don't get too close. Stay to the middle. Uh, Gutrot's like, I'm going straight through. He's like, I don't even, don't even tell me how to fly my fleet. I'm, I'm fine. And um, I love how he's got magic that even Ethrak doesn't get. Like he's just like this is this is his area, his domain. Uh, he calls in a fog of white mist. The high elves spot him. They spot the ships. They start shooting at him, and um, all of a sudden, all this gray green smoke just starts coming out of the rotten beast like tentacles. And uh, the bolt shots go right through all the te- all these smoke tendrils. But as the smoke tendrils get close to the ship, they wrap around the crew and just start grabbing them and suffocating them. So it's like. They solidify when necessary. Right, ethereal at the right time. Yep. 
um, a boat gets close to boarding them, and this whole nest of all these like pseudopods just burst forth and attack the ship, and just dude smash it. It turns it into matchsticks. Uh, it's, it's just no worries. I'm just just sailing by. Right. Like seriously, the high elves like look. There's this stuff. Anyone gets close. Smashed by smoke and tentacles and gross. They really don't have a chance. No, I mean, it, I mean, it, it was kind of interesting. You know, basically they're all like, "We're worried we're going to get attacked." No, 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 no. I got this. No, seriously, we're going to get attacked. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and look how little they can do. So, yeah. yeah. So that's what happened. So now they split the fleet into three forces. The Glotkin are going to head to Marienburg with one jar. Gutrot Spume and his guys are going to Nordland and the old Dwarf Road. And uh, Demon Spew and his guys are going through Grand. And this will split up the Empire. Uh, if the Empire does try to take them all on, they got to spread themselves out over multiple fronts, which will leave them thin and weakened. And then they're all going to hit Altdorf on Gehemmensnacht. <laughs> That's the plan. At last time, courtesy of Mr. Yu. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, so you know what? Before the first fleet gets to Marienburg, why don't we take our first little break? And uh, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll continue with Chapter 1. Sounds good. In the sewers of Altdorf, a lone figure sloshed its way through the muck. As fat-bodied and repulsive as the giant leeches that writhed beneath his robe, the figure sang little snatches of Nordlander nonsense rhymes. Bleeders without blood holes. He mumbled, stroking the leech curled around his neck like a slimy scarf. Lesions, coughs, and nasty sneezes, handkerchiefs, and bad diseases. Good diseases! Bellowed a disembodied voice. An antlered head the size of a boulder rose slowly through the sewage. It was followed by glinting black eyes and a grin that drizzled rot. Antlers, said the robed figure. Art thou Kugoth Plague Father? Yes, boomed the great unclean one, as if pleased by the answer to a riddle. Dr. Fest, I welcome you. It's Festus, dear fellow, said the doctor, sketching a small curtsy. At your service. It is well that I finally meet my generous benefactor. It is indeed a wellspring. I bring glad tidings. I propose a posy of fresh blossoms sniffled by the noses of the Lord. Do you indeed? And who carries these new plagues? Triplets, gifted lot the three, said Kugoth conspiratorially. Glotkin they are called. I have gifted the Avachos with their name, and as a treat, three jars are brimmed from Father's attic. Time to spread wide the banquet of life! He threw his immense arms open, spraying Festus with brown slop. And my part? said Festus, wiping ordure from his eyes. My leechling, we must prepare this stifled city, or riot is gone and it shall become! Festus smiled. The seed of a new vision planted in his soul. Oh, 
back at it. We're back at it. We're back. Some more nuggly goodness. Uh, all right, so uh, Glotkin gets near Marienburg, and the alarms go off, and the Marienburgs are all preparing for attack. Uh, and the ships in the harbor start opening fire, and the plague ships just don't sink. They just put a lot of holes in them. So what? They <laughs> keep on coming. Yeah. I love Nurgle. Uh, the plague ships uh, just start ramming through the defensive ships because, once again, if they get holes in them, so what? Like, it's just, this is their power. They, they're much like the undead ships. They just don't sink. Um, whenever, uh, whenever a boarding plank hits a Marienburg ship, the water is turning pink very soon. Predatory fish start showing up. Um, I love this. This is the best part. So they get in there, and they start killing left and right. And as stuff's dying, the water's getting filled up with all this nurgly gunk and blood. The blood draws the animals. The animals start eating stuff. And whatever they're eating off these nurgle followers or whatever's in the water, the animals in the water start dying. <laughs> it's just... even It's like, ugh, it's, whatever it is, the, the pollution, it, it it's kills It's nightmarish. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a, a theme for the whole book. It is gross. Like as, as I said earlier, reading it just. <laughs> There's a couple of times where I read a paragraph and I think, "Wow, did I just read that?" And I have to reread it again. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, you read it, you're like, "Oh, that's kind of gross." And I, I kept trying to put myself in the mind of the people who were there. And that's exactly why this book, in my opinion, is more compelling than Nagash. Because you know, as humans, we can all relate to that sort of suffering on some exactly. level. Exactly. And, it's terrifying. <laughs> it is. Well, and you try to take out the whole, you know, like the, you know, we've become, you know, with with all the media and seeing stuff being bombarded with all this visual imagery our whole lives. Ebola. We whatnot. become numbed to that stuff. Put yourself in the place of some superstitious peasant who's who just who worries about no something. Yeah. And all of a sudden this pustulant, gross. I mean, here, just get to this. Okay. So the Glotkin, they see the wall around Marienburg and it's dwarf crafted. Oh, crap. <laughs> They're like, oh boy, it's dwar- there's the, like they, there's nothing we can do. They, they they you know the only way in is through the port. It's lined with cannons, and we as we all know, two cannons kill anything. Right. So <laughs> they get close to the wall, and they put up grappling hooks, and the hell blasters blow away the ships that send the grappling hooks. Grappling hooks will not get; they can't get into the mortar between the bricks because it's dwarf crafted. So they just cannot scale this wall. Uh, and so Etherak just looks and puts a plague urn into one of the catapults. And they're like, ooh, let's see what Papa Nurgle gave us. It's so funny. No one knows what's in the jars. It's like, okay, uh, let's see what's here. Let's see what's behind <laughs> let's jar just number lob one. it and see what happens. Yeah. So they just... Go yeah, ahead. Just, yeah, just look at look at the descriptions of it, though, when he, he talk about what Etherak's saying. His eyes twinkling with joyous malice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fun time for them. So, yeah, so Girk pulls back the arm. Normally it takes 12 men, give you a sense of how strong Girk is. So all these guys are looking at giant Girk here, pulls back the catapult arm, and lobs it. Uh, and then suddenly the invaders watch in disbelief as the dwarf-made seawall began to sag a little and then to crumble away. Incredibly, the moss plague had inveigled its tiny roots in the invisible cracks between the dwarf masonry. There, the black moss grew thick and irresistible, with irresistible urgency, splitting the stone and doing the work of several millennia's erosion in the space of a few minutes. It's this weird grave moss. You can smell this peaty earth smell, and it's just this rotting, mossy fungus that just... 
is, so is it? Uh, it's it's seeping its way into the mortar and, and into the bricks and making it decay. Yeah, sort of like ivy, I'm thinking, where yeah. it just starts to, you know, I mean, everything Nurgle touches decays, but this is getting in between stuff and just pushing forward centuries of, you know, mm. rot. It's I'm almost like a, like what is the uh, plague of years? Sure, pl- you know that sort of plague of rust. Those spells where yeah, yeah. it just ate, oh. So there you watch where in minutes this dwarf wall that could have stunned, stood for a thousand years without very much maintenance crumbles in just starts minutes. To sag it's and enough fall to make apart. a beard, make a dwarf shave his beard. <laughs> oh, his head, not his beard. Well, both enough to make a dwarf cry into his beard, though. <laughs> true, true. Uh, I just think that's really just cool. I mean, so then the infantry uh, starts trampling on this grave moss and preparing for combat. Uh, the dockyards are quarantined. Quarantined. Basically, there's a wall of swords all around the dock area. All the streets leading out of the dock are blocked just with rank upon rank of soldiers. Like, nothing's getting through there. Uh, and the Northmen, of course, <laughs> whenever you got guys from the North, they all are, they all are like, they all look like 80s heavy metal guys. <laughs> and they're all just ready to fight, you know. War comes to mind. Exactly. Completely disorganized. I don't care about the cold. I'm just wearing chains. You know, like <laughs> I've got two chains like like suspenders, and um, they just start running in. They're not going to wait for nothing. And of course, they start dying in droves because the empire is regimented, ready, right? And that discipline just kills Holds them in there. Yeah. yeah. At this point, is the grave moss sort of? Are they sort of almost running across the top of where the water was? Is it flooded across out to that, or is this? Are they actually? broken down and landed on the dock at this point because I sort of got the impression that they just almost just overtaken the entire sort of dockyards with it. Oh yeah, I thought so because it That's, says yeah, that the infantry kind of permeates is, the whole the whole area, right? Yeah, the infantry is stepping on it. It's just spreading out and growing and growing and growing. It's all over the place. Um. Oh, and look, the Glotkin use catapults and throws sacks of chaos spawn behind the <laughs> yeah. enemy lines. And Chaos Spawn, which, you know what, that's one of those things when I first started playing. I loved Chaos Spawn. I thought mm-hmm. they were so cool. And back in the beginning, of, back in 7th, they weren't that bad. Because you could just set them down almost like a, a mangler squig. You kind of set it down and let it run. A little bit. It's kind of a little grenade your opponent has to deal with. Yeah. And, uh, but, okay, I love where the Chaos Spawn come from. This is gross, okay? This yeah. is gross. Anybody <laughs> that he eats, anyone that Gurk eats whole and alive... He basically craps out as a chaos spawn, and they come out, you know, mutated by all the stuff in his body into a chaos spawn, mm. completely insane. Because if you went through Gurk's lower intestines and came out as colon, you should be. That's, that won't be pleasant. <laughs> and I'm like, really? That's how they make that? They've got a cha- he's a chaos spawn factory, basically. If he eats you and you're not dead. That's just a, ho- a horrific end for anyone. <laughs> well, it's not even an end because you come out as a spawn. Well, it's, it's an end to your humanity for sure. Oh, it's gross. It's so gross. <laughs> it's just nasty. So the spawn, uh, oh, and I love where they land. They start to absorb the filth. Like they're not that big yet. Apparently you can't crap out a full-size spawn. So like wherever they land, they start absorbing up the gross and the filth and the decay and even some of that, that plague moss. They absorb it all into their system and grow into these huge, the huge spawn. They're huge. <laughs> um, and they fall on the rear lines, all frenzied and crazy. 
And so disorder starts, and, and panic is starting, you know, chaos is breaking through, panic is taking hold. Um, then Ethrak does this spell, and he pulls a, he pulls a Nagash. He starts, uh, has anyone else noticed? I mean, I, you know, we play this game, and I've never read in any of our spell cards that you vomit forth the product of your spell. But Nagash did it for like three days, the big black clouds, and now Ethrak's doing the same thing, vomiting up a cloud of murk. That goes over the docks. Um, like some spells can manifest themselves differently depending on the caster. You could yeah. vomit a fireball or a foot of gork or whatever. <laughs> it's still, it's just, it's There's the local stream of corruption, isn't there, I think? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bray scream? Is that a beastman yeah. spell? Yeah, but that's more of a scream. That's not vomiting up dark and gunk. But uh, so Otto calls Gurk, come out of the ship. And he, they say he's the size of a fish house. So hmm. he's the size of a fishery already. So they get on Gurk and head out. I love how Gurk doesn't really like being ridden, it seems like. Like they ride him because it's necessary. Hmm. <laughs> but he doesn't seem to appreciate it. So the black clouds are out there. And they start raining out black fluids. And most people beneath it, their skin starts to get boils on it. And then they die. Uh, they get blistered tongues, their eyelids get all gummy, and they die from the black rain out of the black clouds. Ugh. <laughs> Girk uh, charges through the lines. Otto leans down. I love it. He's hanging from one of Girk's horns, leaning over, just swinging that scythe and just decapitating everything, just like singing and decapitating. It's like he's harvesting wheat. Exactly. <laughs> Um, now, okay, now the death from the, the clouds is so gross that people see it and start screaming plague because they see all the boils coming and stuff. And once the guys in the back start hearing the people in the front screaming plague, that's pretty much it. They start to panic. Yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, oh, here's another, let's, okay, because not enough gross yet. That's going to be the word for this. I think that's the, the, the word, the secret word here. Wherever the black rain falls on the moss, the moss grows more virulent. Hmm. And if you happen to be standing next to it and it grows and gets on you, it starts to grow on you. And so it grows on people and starts to decay their limbs and grow into their mouths and choke them. And uh, it kind of reminds me of that episode of Creepshow. Remember that movie Creepshow from the 80s? Where the meteor lands and Stephen King touches it and then he turns it, the moss starts growing on him. Until he just, Vaguely. it's just, it just reminds you of that. It's like, oh, um, where's yeah, the because thing? a lot of these people, a lot of these um, are mercenaries fighting as well, aren't they? So I don't yeah. think they're not fighting for anything they actually care about of the money. So I think at, at some point they think uh, this probably isn't for me. Right. Probably not what. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's get out. <laughs> so then, um, then you got this last part here, and you get Otto and Ethrak are, are riding their brother through the streets. They're scattering before the disorder. The scent of fire drifts through. In the distance, the Imperial Armory, Army crests on the horizon, and the Glotkin are ready to fight a dozen of Karl Franz's military. Yet it's not the armies of the living that came to bar his path. And then it's this guy, Munvard. And he's like, oh, you know what? This sucks. <laughs> I love the Munvard story. So this clown... Uh, he's Munvard the Cruel and his servant Alicia. And uh, he's like, apparently he's been hiding zombies and skeletons all over the city for years, waiting 
for his chance to take over Marienburg. And these guys have showed up and have ruined it for him. Yeah, this is his city. How dare they? Yeah, they totally screwed things up for him. So, so you refer to him as a clown, huh? I, th- I find that funny. Well, I just well, funny like a clown. He amuses you. <laughs> Hong Kong. <laughs> well, he shows up and he's like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to get him. And so he goes after him. And basically, Otto sticks his scythe right through his neck, picks him up, hands him to Girk, and Girk throws him about a mile and a half out into the ocean. <laughs> So yeah, so let's uh, let's do this. We got about. I want to get through this. We got about ten minutes to get through the Battle of Marienburg here. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Marienburgers are dead. There is blood everywhere. It's like ankle high in the streets, and that's just feeding the death, the grave moss. Munvard is all excited. He's smelling all the blood. You know, you can't hold, and the more they kill, the more he can just raise. He's like, oh, I'm, and as I'm reading this, I'm like, really? It's the same as last time again. I'm going to get more of this. Yeah, he's game. a vampire, to be clear. Yeah. We should say oh, I'm sorry, he's yeah. a vampire. Uh, but he's not happy because his plans are messed up. So now from his roof, he sees this, and he starts calling all the these zombies and stuff down. Um, you know, when Munvard is, is flung out into the bay, that's not the last that we see of him. No, in fact, I was I was kind of hoping that wasn't be wouldn't be because that was just a really stupid. <laughs> that just seemed so it's laughable. And well, that almost seemed that seemed Game of Thrones ish, like when that one guy shows up. And spoilers if you haven't caught up on Game of Thrones, but the guy who gets his head squashed like a like a watermelon. Oh yeah, like he shows up and he's like, I'm going to get revenge for my sister. Right, right. I'll help you. And he's like, he gets into one fight and he's gone. It's like, oh really? Kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> exactly. Although the, when Munvard does reappear, his end the second time I think is even more laughable. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> I'm back. No, no, you're <laughs> right. not. Okay, so let's see. So groups of Forsaken called the Accursed rush in, uh, and I love it. They got, he's going in, and the, the, this you know the the Forsaken, the Accursed, they go rushing in there, and Otto's like, uh, "Get him, go!" Like like trying to still assert that he's in charge, and his right. brothers laughing at him like like anybody thought. They were like anyone was waiting for Otto's signal, right. but because they're rushing in headlong, he tries to assert himself. That that brother thing again. His brother's like, "Yeah, like you were running that." Okay, we got you. Um, and they are just in the middle of this sea of undead, cutting and stabbing and killing. Uh, the Red Reavers show up. Um, we got five Marion. They got five Marionburg banners already, mm. and they're covered head to toe in blood. I mean, these guys are just violent. They've already taken out five of these units, uh, but they're so outnumbered. And, you know, they, they've killed hundreds, but thousands are still there. Coven Throne comes sweeping out of the sky. And I love this. One of the, the Red Reaver champion jumps up, and the handmaiden gives him the look, and he just stops like, oh, pretty lady. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of this one, Chris? The, the Coven Throne? Yeah. Where he jumps up there yeah, well, and he's that's, that's... Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I don't don't think that was ever going to end well, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just so funny. He jumps up there and they, he stares at him and he gets hypnotized and they just kind of cut his throat and push him over. Of The one cuts his throat and shoves him overboard while the other two are covering their noses with handkerchiefs against his nurgly stink. <laughs> I love him. They're so, disgusted by it just as much as the humans are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's that. No, go ahead. We, we again, we see a lot. It's sort of a, an underlying theme of these end time books is the way the vampires are still very 
human in many ways in the ways they act and the things they do and the way they react to things, I think. Yeah, they've got this very human influence. In fact, in the first book, Vlad kept mentioning it, how, you know, Manfred is trying to be just all vampire-y, and he's like, we've all been affected. Even even Archon's like, you know, you you think you're this tough, immortal thing, but you still act like an empire mm-hmm. fob sometimes. So, Glotkin are still moving forward. You know, they're smashing stuff. They're breaking through everything. Uh, and this is what happens. This basically, they get to the docks. Munvard sends his wraiths in to start clearing out the because the, they're ethereal and they can't be stopped. They're wiping stuff out. And then the terror guys comes in and starts screaming. Okay, this terror guy shatters windows for a mile around. <laughs> you know, I can't ever roll that high. Like. I, <laughs> <laughs> These things are just so good in the stories. But basically, the Glock can see that thing screaming and see those ethereals, and they're like, that's where we got to go. The, the the head guy will be there. And, of course, they go there, and, hey, look, there's the vampire. And so they just, <laughs> as they're losing, then uh, Girk smashes through the skeletons. Etheric pulls a spell that takes the ethereal off the wraiths. Oh, that was really cool. Hmm. The All these wraiths <laughs> apparently were wizards. That, that had died and become this ethereal spirits. Like, that's how come they were ethereal, I guess, instead of skeletons, I guess. Okay. Or maybe that's what makes them wraiths. They had some sort of magical quality. He basically took away the ethereal. So these ethereal things slowly start looking around as the oh, ethereal they become thing. real. And they become these human wizards who then age like a bajillion years. And they're, like, looking around going, oh, my God, we're like old wizards. And the Norskins look at him like, oh, not ethereal anymore, huh? Hack. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool spell. To remove the ethereal from yeah, them. That's, that's a spell that would have been cool in the game. Yeah. That's yeah. Nice. So. Um, this could be a hex or augment. Make something ethereal or take ethereal away. Oh, that would be a cool right? level six that would spell. Be cool. that, would be, that would be a high level spell, too. That would be like a five or six because making things ethereal would be really worth it. But taking things away would be, you know. Could also. It could be useful. if your enemy has it. You right. know, that's, you know, so that's where. But let's keep with this, I guess. So, okay. Uh, Munvard's jumping around, chopping up Gurk, chopping up Gurk, cutting him, cutting him, cutting him. And uh, But he cuts too deep, and Gurk's, like, inside gunk spays and gets Munvard in the eyes. And while he's trying to wipe the pus and gunk out of his eyes, that's when he gets a scythe in the neck and tossed out to the ocean. <laughs> and <I'm- laughs> I, as, I'm poor vampire. This, as I'm reading this, I wrote down, not necessarily dead, because I was taking notes the first time reading through, like hadn't gotten to the end yet. Right. Like, I haven't seen a body. So he's, <laughs> right. You know, he's not out. He's just down. You know, Wayne Kemp oh, can get as annoyed as he wants. If I don't see a body without a head, <laughs> he's coming back. So the Empire enforcements finally get there. The Glotkin are trying to catch their breath. It's the right guard irregulars. And so you've got this guy, Von Karaberg, with 200 of his men, and he's afraid he's going to die. Yeah, they write up some nice, a nice little bit of background for him, don't they? Yeah. He's a man who finds irritation in almost everything. <laughs> he's got yeah. a, a quite a nice passage about him. Yeah. He's probably not going to find this fun. Everything annoys him, and this really just pisses him off when he looks at He's like, yeah, we're really outnumbered, and all this. Come on. Um, so, you know... What he, he looked at what is what is his two hundred guys against whatever just knocked over the most the richest city in the empire in just under a day. Uh, I love they sm- they smell blood and worse. <laughs> 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 the, 
the vague, oh, that's gross. <laughs> uh, Marienburg looks like it fell years ago, which is kind of cool. You know, this beautiful jewel of a city looks like it's been decaying forever. It's decayed just, in one afternoon. Ugh, yeah. Um, in fact, the, the irregulars the irregulars all have vinegar-soaked handkerchiefs over their mouth to kind of cut back the smell, and hopefully to cut back, like, if there's any plague stuff, you know, right. vinegar. Filter it out, yeah. sure. Uh, there's all sorts of destruction. The Glotkin and their army are coming to them, and they're locked in their formation. The Norskins hit the line, and the battle starts. Uh, I like it. The pistoliers on the flank are shooting up these mutant northerners. Uh, and they, they, the, the pistolers ride up, start shooting, and they start to run away. And Etheric just turns their horses to dust. He's like, nope, die, horses. And next thing he's you know... Some, the, doesn't he, this guy? Yeah. I mean, he, he's got a spell for everything. It's just like, this guy's bag of tricks is endless. It's, I've got just the thing. But... Uh, <laughs> Instead of killing them, he kills the horses so that the mutant Norsemen can catch up and destroy those guys. So you got the Karabar greatswords and the pale blades are holding the line. All this is going on. Uh, incredibly, the courage and the discipline of the regulars starts winning the battle. His 200 guys are winning the battle. And as they start pushing them back towards the dock, it looks like they've got this one... And at least the Glotkin themselves are going to be stopped, and it's going to be up to the Maggot Lords and, um, what's his name, Tentacle Boy. Uh, but the ground is so mossy and bloody, they flip it, they friggin' trip. <laughs> all of them <laughs> they, they all start. They, well, you know you know what happened when it's like icy and you're with a bunch of friends and one guy slips on the ice and grabs you for hold, to hold him up? <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. So they slip. And this gives the Norskins an in, and suddenly the Glotkin and them are in. They, they get in there, and they get him down. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, wait. Though the Bordermen fought a valiant fighting retreat, their comrades were slowly swallowed up, swallowed up in the Norskin tide. They were the only irregulars to survive the battle in the Marienburg Waste that day. The rest of the army was cut to pieces. The great swords were the last to die, fighting to the last against waves of hacking axes and stabbing rusted swords. The city port had fallen, and the Empire had its first taste of the entropy and woe that was to consume it in the coming months. And that's almost the end of the chapter. Let's, uh, you know what? Let's just finish off. We got like one little paragraph left, and then we'll uh, take another break and come back with chapter two. Um, I love the brothers joking around after they win the battle. How Otto pulls some of the moss and makes a funny beard out yeah. of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Girk is just eating things, and Ethrax checking stuff around. I'm like, R really? This is what they're doing? Like it was just like the weirdest. I love, I love, I love Afrax sort of just shaking his head at Otto as he makes the beers. If say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like a <laughs> but he's picking up corpse. Tr he's picking up bits of stuff from the corpses that he's going to use for later spells. Yeah, well, who knows what else? What other spells he might need later? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But so they drop Marion Berg in a day, thanks to the plague. Uh, the undead slowed him down, but that was it. Girk eats a dozen more people. Uh, the live ones are going to become more spawned, and the other ones feed Girk, who is still growing. And meanwhile, the Norskins are picking through the dead and basically getting all the best weapons and stuff they can. All these Empire guys who had good weapons and stuff. Sure, you'll like, time to upgrade. Exactly. 
Exactly. And then, um, yeah, finally, basically what you get is at the end there, they, the, the, the hordes are uh, bellowing their approval with the power of plague on their side. The Empire would be ripe for conquest within weeks. Even Ethrak had no idea what strange gifts lay inside each of the plague urns carried by their fellow warlords. Still, with Nurgle's fond and fatherly gaze, how could they fall? And there's chapter one. Knock down a city in a day. Do you want to touch on the side column at all? Um, so yeah, the side column. Chris, you want to talk about this? Uh, only because there's sort of a secondary plot line running through here that kind of uh, describes what the gods are experiencing as these battles are unfolding. Yeah, I found these um, sort of a little hard to get my head around, really, a little bit with uh, referencing the gods all the time. I was trying to sort of had to found out to reread these passages to really sort of get a full gist of what was going on. Because as Chris said, there is sort of the undertone of this with the gods throughout this book, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, it's Ta'al, who's like, isn't he the, he's like one of the wood elf gods? Uh, God of nature. Yeah, I God guess. of nature. Yeah. Ulrich's there. I love how Ulrich's there. He's real mm-hmm. with the wolf head. But yeah, basically Nurgle, as Nurgle is destroying the the land. Ta'al is feeling it. Ta'al is dying, yeah. Ta'al is getting, getting pulled under. And what with... The uh, stuff that's going on in the Wood Elf realm. Remember that whole Save Our Mother thing? And right. she's down there, which comes up in the next book, uh, which comes up in Kane more because that's LV stuff. Mm-hmm. But as the land is dying, yeah, Tal is just. And, uh, you know, I, knowing now, having gone through Kane, that this actually will make more sense later. I like right. it. But, yeah, I was just kind of like, what is going on? You know, you call them. Have, have we seen the gods sort of reference like this before almost like them chilling out talking etc i don't not 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 in this way no well but i mean we've never had a need to have we i mean because they're the gods they're supposed to be the sort of unknowing and unknowable thing but as the chaos gods start corrupting this planet the gods of this planet because i mean these conversations are between nurgle you know, the chaos gods coming down to the, these little, you know, the gods of the warp coming down to the gods of, you know, this puny one little planet going, right. oh, you really are a joke. You know that, don't you? Oh, so the, they're not really on equal footing then? I guess the gods of chaos. Well, Tal uh, is the god of nature on Warhammer World, whereas. Or, well, or the nature, the yeah. god of nature oh, he could throughout. Be, maybe. I, I don't know. I guess if you want to. Really, I think that's up to our own interpretation right. there. I'm pretty sure. I mean, from what we get here, and as we say into Cain, I think that's the most we really probably ever learn of the gods and what they're getting up to. I guess I think. I think so too, because previously, you know, you know, the champions would do this, that, and the wars would happen, and then the gods would smile. That would usually be the extent of it before, yeah. <laughs> right? The gods would smile. So yeah, it's a little uh, different this time around. They're almost like being personified, aren't they? You even talk about Tal getting... He's looking down, he's got discolored spots spreading across his skin, black moss sprouting in patches from his limbs. So he's like a, almost like a physical being at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, all right, so... This, yeah, this, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because I kind of skipped over it in the notes because it was one of those things when I was taking the notes. I'm like, all right, this is obviously something that's going to come up later. I'm not certain about it, so... You know what, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll hit Chapter 2. Yep. Okay?
That's right, folks. Chaos Orc Superstore, your one-stop shop for all your hobby gaming needs. They've not only got current and classic GW releases, Chess X Dice, and Vallejo Paints, but now they're also carrying Mantic, Infinity, Flames of War, Privateer Press, Soda Pop, Dark Age, and other assorted boarded miniature-based games. They usually ship within 24 hours, and the model in the picture is the model they ship to you, because at Chaos Orc Superstore, what you see is what you get. Chaos Orc Superstore. Hey folks, it's Dave. Are you looking for that special model to add to your army? A monstrous creature, or maybe a character model? Something unusual that not everybody else is fielding on their table? Well, then you should check out Mears Miniatures at MearsMiniatures.com. Their Darklands line is full of some of the most fantastic creature models you'll ever see. And with the success of their recent Kickstarter, those models will be perfect for you to play in their forthcoming Darklands game. So whether you're looking for a new skirmish-level game to play with lots of cool monstrous creatures, or you're just looking for that extra special model to add to your existing games line, Mears Miniatures is really worth your time. Check them out at Mears-Miniatures.com. And seriously, guys, you'll be glad you did. No Southlings, intoned the executioner somberly. Hmm. A stark contrast, replied Spume. Last time I brought war to this coast, their emperor attended the battle in person to turn us back. How? asked Eogric bluntly. With the aid of the Kislevite snow witch, replied Spume, Carl Franz fled to hide behind her skirts, begging her to freeze the sea around my hordes. What manner of man lets his woman do a warrior's work? A coward, said Eogric. A lucky coward. This time... This time will be different. There was a groan of timbers as a massive tentacle reached out from the rotten beast's hull and curled its tip around Spume's waist. The kraken limb carried the warlord to the horde below, setting him upon the palanquin as his mutants carried. This time, called the lord of tentacles over his shoulder, I shall kill the fool myself! Spume raised his pitted axe high to the blares of a hundred war horns. The great procession rode out. And that's the start of Chapter 2 here. Yeah, so Chapter 2, uh, we have Gutrot Spume and his efforts yes. towards making uh, his way towards the Empire. So we have his uh, fleet making landfall at Nordland with yep. no interference, apparently, from the elven ships or Imperial armies. Maybe um, the fleet's reputation has preceded them and they've just cleared the way. Sounds like it. Uh, you have the uh, the army vanguard for this for this throng of the invasion, known as the Blade Brethren, raiders of the area. So they're familiar with the terrain, and so they kind of guide the army uh, through the area. Um, they're making their way down coastal roads towards the Southlands um, through the Lorlorn forests. When they hear the suddenly strange bleeding calls and dancing fires, what could this be? <laughs> Yeah, Beastmen, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I'll as they're first book, <laughs> right, right. As they're uh, heading towards Middlelands, uh, then towards uh, they, they then make a, a turn towards Altdorf. So Altdorf is, you know, the crux of where all of this is going to culminate. Right. <clears throat> so again, the Glocken's plan was to reach uh, for all the armies to reach uh, Altdorf by Gehemnisnacht, uh, 
but spume aspired to reach it first and claim it for all of his glory. And once again, this is why Archeon doesn't trust these the different champions because everybody's always got an agenda. Well, it's chaotic, right? Exactly. Everyone is, is does have their own agenda. Yep. Uh, so yeah, Spume's plan is to cut through the forest as a shortcut, confident that he can uh, fight through whatever's in there and and make Altor first. I think he sort of he's, he underestimates a lot of things. I think throughout this Spume, he sort of just thinks, "Oh yeah, I'm the best." Like just because maybe on the seas with his plague fleet, he, he's probably right. He probably can, but on land, it doesn't seem to pan out quite so well for him. <laughs> No, yeah, not at all. Especially since his armies are more used to fighting on the tundra and in the ice, not uh, being slowed down by you know forests and everything. Yeah, he totally misjudges how thick and deep and hard it is to get through the freaking jungle of that. You know, I mean, it's not the jungle, but it's such a thick... it's such a different way of fighting. Yeah. Um, so while he's making his way through the forest, uh, he's being spied upon by imperial patrols, but they're being run down by you know the, his horsemen tribes. So. These poor horsemen over the Empire can't get back to, to warn Altor for what's happening. Except right. for one Marcus Wolfhart. Da, da, da. Yeah. Now he's a character in the Empire book, right? He's that, like, the super hunter dude. He's awful. <laughs> okay, I mean, not super in terms... You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's the monster hunter, essentially, isn't he? Yeah, uh, he's also got, uh, apparently, ninja-like camouflage abilities, so... Um, Hey, we like the camouflage abilities. Right, yeah. So all spies were intercepted, uh, save Marcus Wolfhart, a renowned hero of the Midland. Yeah, there's a, there's a passage here that describes what he's doing. The veteran scout darted through the beast trails of the forest, skilled enough in the ways of stealth and to remain unseen. He's like uh, Batman, in a sense. <laughs> or, or, or a ranger. Or a ranger. That's how I kind of picture him, as sort of a ranger having a mottled, you know, cloak. Something that could help help him hide into the forest, you know. Basic early camouflage. Right. So they describe Wolfhart uh, riding to the forest camp of Boris Toadbringer. Uh, but Toadbringer already knew of the coming army. Yeah. So ambassador, ambassadors from Ulthawan had visited the, the electric count the night before. Um, but Toadbringer could not ride out to meet Gutrot's army because he was so... Close to finding and killing Kazrak One Eye and ending the Beastmen threat once and for all. See, and the elves even show up and tell him that this huge Nurgle force is coming, and he's like, "No, no, no." He's got other fish to fry, right? But he's but but he's been sort of crazy, wasn't he? In the first book, wasn't he one of the guys who was fighting against them in the first book? And remember when they attacked the 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 they attacked the keep? Mm-hmm. Wasn't he one yeah, of the I, guys who was there? Because I don't know if you know much about him or he, all his fluff in his and Kazrak's are, are intertwined, and that's basically all he's. I think Kazrak actually took out one of Todd Bringer's eyes as well, so I think they've both only got one eye to keep taking each other's eyes. An eye for an eye, literally. Yeah, yeah, and they've been. And I think um, Todd Bringer killed Kazrak's favorite chaos hound or something, but they've. they've <laughs> killed my dog! <laughs> They've been going on each other for additions now, so I think they're putting that into it. Even though he knows the impending danger, he doesn't really care because he thinks he's going to find Kazrak once again, which, yeah. Well, yeah, it's higher priority, I suppose, in his book. So it says goes on to say that Spume's army was disregarded as mere raiders, despite all of Wolfhart's warnings. Yeah, see, that's where he's so blinded going after One-Eye that he just doesn't want to hear. 
Nurgle's yeah. never chaos has never come this far. It's just they're they're always just small yeah, little ridiculous. raiding parties. Get out of here! I'm, yeah. I'm about to you know kill my nemesis here. Yeah. So Wolfhart uh, then moves on to Altdorf. You know, if they're not going to heed his warnings, then he's going to move on to the big city, and maybe they'll take my warning seriously. Yeah, I'll tell the emperor or whoever's there. Mm. Well, yeah. So when he arrives, three of the surviving Elector counts are demanding audience with the Reichsmarshal, Kurt Halborg. The borders are in turmoil, and Karl Franz's armies are all spread thin. So they've got to get their act together, right? Yeah. Poor and poor Kurt Helborg. I mean, he's just like, ugh, I don't know how the Emperor puts up with this nonsense. Everyone wants a bit of him, and he's just he's out of his depth, isn't he, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't have time for the political maneuvering. He's frustrated with the politics. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, these flamboyantly dressed politicians uh, reduced to shouting matches each thinking themselves the ideal candidate to act as steward in Franz's absence. The Empire needed warriors and healers far more than politicians. Yeah, see, exactly. He's got a warrior sensibilities, but you've got to have that. I mean, the, em- the Emperor has both, and that's, that's why he's kind of so awesome. Yeah. yeah. He, he can play in all phases. I know I keep bringing it up, but I've really come to appreciate him much more reading these books, because you always hear about, and you know, in the... In the the Empire book and stuff, how he's such a great politician. Mm. But you hear about this, uh, when you watch him in action and watch how other people fail to do what he does with such ease, it's just, okay, he's really awesome. All right, real quick, we're not going to take a break, but um, just so people know, I have to cut out for a few minutes, so you guys are going to keep going with Chapter 2 without me, which means that you'll actually get to hear Chris and Chris actually speak. So enjoy, (laughs) and I'll be back in time for Chapter 3, or maybe sooner. <laughs> what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> we got to I the heard silence. that. <laughs> so, yeah, the empire is scrambling. Uh they need the warriors and healers more far more than politicians. Uh and at this point the disease is really starting to creep into Altdorf. You have and they describe all these afflictions in grim detail, the blood cough and lung blights and they've sound Nice. <laughs> no, not at all. It, it just sounds awful. You have sections of the city that are being quarantined, and you know that's leading to civil unrest. And I think Helborg has no qualms about putting down these sort of mini rebellions. You know, with with I, I suspect it's something he probably quite enjoys. It maybe gets him away from all the, <laughs> the intriguing court and stuff. Right. Finally, it's, some action, even if it's my own yeah, people. Go and smash the meds instead. Right. So there are yeah, rumors of the fall of Marienburg and the, the Western Reich choked with grave moss start to seep into the city. Uh, to the east, you have Restless Dead massing and uh, Restless Dead are, are rising in great number uh, as the energies of death start to saturate the land. And I, I wonder if this is uh, hinting at the work of the VC sort of coming to light? I suppose it must be, really. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's certainly related to obviously what uh, Nagash did with releasing the uh, mm-hmm. the law of death, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're setting up the the stage for uh, sort of a VC undead for on uh, demon, all, all centered in Altdorf here, coming up in a little bit. Uh, so yeah, they they mention a plague ship sighted in the Gulf of Kislev, heading towards the coast. Uh, Helberg saw the Empire was surrounded, and he receives a mysterious scroll from. From Vlad, so you, you, can you tell us a little bit about the scroll and uh, what his proposition there might be? Yeah, so this this is r- really pretty good actually. Um, 
Vlad wants to be be, be given uh, the title of elect account in it in in exchange for helping out the empire. That's the the long and the short of it. So it, this is sort of his opportunity after centuries of political maneuvering. The opportunity is kind of presented to him on a silver platter, in a sense. I, to me, I I found this a bit. I think it's I think it's a cool twist, and I like it. Mm. But to me, it almost felt something a bit more like something Manfred might do. Because you remember before when we were talking about Vlad, he's pretty much all all he's really interested about is getting Isabella back, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he didn't seem so bothered with the pomp and all, all that. You can imagine Manfred would, would would like it almost as a mocking sort of thing. Right. Whereas I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you that's part of all the von Karstein's nature, I suppose. But yeah, I, I thought thought it was a nice nice little touch, and you could tell um, Helborg was not at all happy about it. No, not at all. I mean, it's such a weird spot to be put in in terms of uh you know relations you know you have to you have to sort of deal with these undead that are not even human and i don't know i i just can't see i I can see that character really having a hard time coming to grips with that not only considering him an equal but putting him into such a high you know off rank of office like you say it's uh, where the empire traditionally has been so I mean, just against anything, even the, the slightest hint of someone being a witch or or anything like that, people would be put to the torch for. So mm-hmm. having to fully ally with a being such as a vampire, I think, is just so way and beyond what what they're used to doing. I think it's completely out of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, to say the least. So, yeah, there's a section here where uh, the two-page spread... The vaulted cellar under the abandoned hospice was warm and quiet, just how Dr. Festus liked it. The dark apothecary sang in a resonant bass that would have done Detlef Cirque proud as he bumbled over to a glass-strewn bench. Carefully decanting an alembic of pus primaris into a bowl of simmering crow's blood, he turned his head away and took a deep breath that should be sufficient for the next verse. The tune was a nurgling ditty he had picked up during his time in his master's great garden. He hadn't been able to get it out of his head ever since. Not that he minded. He'd even added a few verses of his own these last few days. Rumpa-dee-tum, tiddly-i-po, boil the blood and in you go. Festus happily sniffed at the vile scent that emanated from the seven-gauge copper saucer. Close to perfect, but still a ways to go yet before the sixth ingredient was complete. Still, now he was back in civilized lands, he was confident of success. It had been next to impossible to do any proper research in the icy wastes of the far north with all that wind sleet, and hail buzzing about. As much as Festus loved the dizzying variety of test subjects up in the north, more than one concoction had frozen solid before he could force-feed it to some lucky recipient. His leeches had moaned on and on about the constant cold, and he risked his equipment shattering or cracking every time he tested his poisons in battle. In the end, he had packed up his tools and headed south to Altdorf, a city so busy that even one as foul as he could escape detection. To his great pleasure, he found his reserve hospice pretty much as he had left it. He had set up his laboratory in the cellar that same night. The doctor's time amongst the brutish northerners had been very informative, and he'd obtained some vital materials. But ultimately, his little holiday had only diverted him from the great work. One could not bring boundless life to the world whilst walking in the shadow of death. To foster true abundance meant forsaking the world of the killer for a time, and for a man of learning such as Festus, that was just fine. Scooping up the top half of the corpse and holding his arm outstretched, the leech lord danced clumsily across his laboratory. Fiddle-dee-deem, wriggle and scream, nibble the fingers and taint the cream. 
propping his dancing partner against a dunking stool. The doctor twisted the keg tap inserted into the neck of one of the corpses that hung upside down from the cellar's arches. A lumpy gray liquid oozed from the corpse's open mouth, and Festus filled a generous glass vial to the brim before wiping away the overspill with a fat finger. He couldn't resist tasting it afterwards, looking around guiltily to see if any of his corpses were watching. Naughty but nice. And anyway, who could begrudge him? He'd always wondered if his fellow apothecaries would yield the best ingredients on the inside as well as the out. Sure enough, they tasted splendid. His mind wandered to a different tune. Distribute the boxes in window boxes, tumpity dum, tickle the tum. There was a series of bubbling pops from the cauldron in the center of the cellar's seven benches. The noise startled Festus into a silence. He'd not yet lit the fire pit today. He was sure of it. The doctor heard a low and sibilant hiss. Every corpse in the room turned to him, mouthing his name. The room filled with an indescribably powerful stench he had smelt before, back when he had still been human. Ah, said the doctor, slowly and carefully placing his glassware on the counter. Cold sweat began to appear on his flaccid jowls. His fear dissipated somewhat when a tiny antlered head poked its way out of the cauldron. Its rot drizzling grim reminded Festus of an old friend of his. Wellspring! It squeaked. And wellspring to you too, little one, said Festus cautiously. He looked around, but the corpses had turned back to normal. The ugly little demon squinted at him for a moment, bit its ragged lip, and the cauldron bubbled again. I'm bringing it! It cried, raising its tiny misshapen arms in celebration. Then tell of it, replied the doctor. By your antlers, I'd say you have a message from Kugoth, correct? Correct! He said, Doctor, Doctor, burn me quick! Burn you, little one? said Festus, his brow furrowed. Why in Nurgle's name would I want to do that? The demon said earnestly. Another two-anthered demon mites rose from the bubbling cauldron on either side of it and nodded like serious children. Triplets? Do you mean the triplets? The glots of Norska? The anthered nurgling nodded vigorously in response. The glotkin are nearing Altdorf already, pondered Festus. I rather doubt that. Do Altdorf! Do Altdorf! They sing. Something's make a new Altdorf! Hmm, interesting. And are you three shroudlings, then? Is that why Kugoth wants me to burn you? The first nurgling squinted its eyes and nodded happily. Evil-smelling bubbles burst up around it, leaving gray puffs in the air. Smog! It declared. I think I see, said Festus. By burning you, little one, we can make the city more to our liking. Is that right? No outdoors! No outdoors! The nurglings shrilled, paddling around the cauldron and splashing each other. Yes, yes, said Festus. Well, the closer we get this gloomy old city to the glory of the Master's Garden, the happier we'll all be. The doctor glooped a gallon of gunk out of the cauldron with a large glass bowl, plopping out several nurglings in the process. Right, my selfless little friends. Time for you to go in the fire. All right, so then we have Gutrot Spume's army. You know, they're back to the forest, hacking their way through Drakwald. And, uh, yeah, still going on on his um, war shrine as well. Yeah, carried <laughs> on. The, <laughs> not, a, not a very uh, efficient way to move about, but... Uh, so, yeah, his war bands are becoming disoriented and dispersed and swallowed up by the forest. 
And Speem's vanguard is cut down to re- reveal a, a cave network. And this was a very interesting sort of interaction. So they stumble upon uh, sort of this beastman tribe. Yeah. And I think the shaman immediately realizes, you know, who, who's come upon them. And there's an interesting pas- passage here where they say, the shaman brought his gnarled hands together in front of his barrel chest and made a, sh- a shaken double fist, a gesture of unity that transcends the barriers of language or geography. So they're sort of allying themselves here with... Uh, yeah, well, whilst the beastmen themselves might not be able to realize what spume is, I think uh, the shaman obviously can see um, he, he's here for a greater purpose, so I think he's willing to sort of... Um, align with him and you, you sort of get the impression that if they didn't want to do that the beastmen whilst as we've said are the whipping boys of the end times um they probably could have uh given um spume a bit of bother uh on their home territory here i think I, I, yeah i think so i think so so in light of that the fact that they join spume's army and swell his ranks that's a massive windfall for spume definitely and obviously then they get their knowledge of of um getting through the forest as well, so I think it's sort of a twofold. Exactly thing. right. Yeah. So that sort of expedites their uh, their journey through the forest. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. So once they ally and start moving through the forest together, of course, once you have these armies combined, you have to have someone to fight them to kind of test oh, their metal. Cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and who do we have? Hapless forest goblins. Forest goblins, yeah. Now this um this army <laughs> that you see here is um I've seen a couple of people field similar armies to this. Um, Aaron, who's done our um, our blog that we've been doing with our campaign, has fielded an army full of uh, forest goblins and savage orcs. And then um, also, who's who's the chap in America that's got it as well? Oh, Paul Wagner, I think. Wagner, that's yeah. it. Sorry, I slipped my memory. Yeah, yeah. So that I think that I think I saw both of them sort of tweeting. Oh, my army's in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I I would imagine I haven't fielded an, an army like quite like that. But I would imagine it's as effective on the table as it is effective in this portion of the fluff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a good descriptive battle, and there are a lot of interesting kind of exchanges of what happens here. But these, these you just knew from the onset that these greenskins just did not have a chance. No, no, they they are fulfilling in the role of the the beastmen there, just to sort of put up a fight, uh, but eventually mm-hmm. get knocked out of the way. Um, but again, as 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 you say, the it's a more interesting battle to read. I think there there is something to be said for the the battles with the undead. Maybe not capturing the imagination quite as well. I think mm. when when you I don't know you, I don't know something more about the, the flesh and bone um, as opposed to just bone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, yeah, you have uh, goblins in there with uh, spiders kind of falling all about, and they're just massive numbers of these things. No matter how many Gutrot kills, you know, ten more take its place. And uh, it, it's a it's a fight of a thousand cuts. You know they they may not do a lot of damage, but if they're hitting gut rot a lot of times, you know one little uh, slice may get through, and over time that starts to take its toll. And there's a it's interesting. So while this fighting is going on, it, it just attracts this horde of savage orcs, right? That hear the noise and then they emerge from the forest and just join the fight. I thought yeah, that I was a little bit random. Yeah, they weren't there to start off with. It was just the the forest goblins, and then as you say. The savage orcs, I think, just get drawn to the noise and decide to to come on in as well. Yeah, because they they end up fighting out in a bit of a, a clearing, don't they? I think. Yeah, yeah. They they have they they go on to say a giant of a greenskin sprinted across the moon dappled heart of the clearing at their at their hurt at their head. 
tongue lolling and eyes rolling back as you've roared in battle lust. Though the orcs were still some half a mile half mile distant, the Norsekin invaders were soon to be fighting against not one enemy, but two. So here they are fighting on two fronts. And yeah, the as this battle happens, there's again there's a lot of uh interesting exchanges and, and Spume killing a lot of goblins and killing the orc boss, you know, dispatching him pretty easily. Um, yes. But what I thought was interesting was the Arachnoroks, and not just the way that they fought and, and and died, but the way that they were sort of used by this Nurgle army to sort of further its own ends. Yeah. Uh, they, they talk about things like uh, using par- portions of the Arachnorok's body to fuel some of the spells and everything, and uh, despite the goblins amassing all this green skin power in this area, you know it gets it gets taken over by Nurgle, and they sort of wrest all this power from the green skin gods and hand it over to, to Nurgle. So it's an interesting play. That's not only army versus army, but then it's, it's, it's deity versus deity. Yeah, I think I think that definitely is is a part of that. And I just touch on what you're saying about them physically using parts of the Arachnorok as such in spell. Does that, does that go back to with Ephrak actually collecting parts after the battle to use on spells? So, I mean, is that something that's really touched on much? The actually physically using parts to to cast spells. Uh, I I remember there was a part in here where where they, there was a half submerged. Arachnorok, I think, sunk in a pool of, I don't know, festering liquid, whatever it is that, that Nurgle had created. Standard Nurgle. Right, right. And uh, they, they used that body as sort of uh, an offering or to sort of jumpstart creating this sort of mini Garden of Nurgle in this goblin lair. And I think ultimately what it does is it serves to open up the forest, right? Yes, yeah. That's basically, I think, how they finally get their way out of there, don't they? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it, the, the forest opens up and creates a tunnel, thereby expediting their journey towards Altdorf. Yeah, they just say, uh, A temple of Nurgle's uh, boundless life had been born to the field of orc corpses. All the magical power the forest goblins had harnessed was transferred to Nurgle instead. So these poor goblins. Oh, yeah, they, they, they say, Spume orders his warshine forward and he leaps onto the half-submerged Arachnorok, caught in the Harbinger's magical quagmire. Its spine cracks, and its uh, spume cracks it with a, cracks its skull with his axe, and in its death throes, the Arachnorok shatters the next plague jar. That's what it is. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, that, that's a very important part. <laughs> yeah. So are they, do they not actually intend for it to go off, then? Uh, my impression was that they did, and they just needed some kind of sacrifice to... Facilitate that. Yeah. So, what happens when uh, when this uh, this jar cracks? It says, uh, drizzling out from the rear of the war shrine was a gray brown liquid that poured and poured, far exceeding the capacity of the earthenware plague jar that had contained it. Wherever it splashed upon the ground, thick tendrils of thorny vines burst outwards in a profusion that defied all logic. The strange thorny vines sought out the dead bodies that lay scattered across the clearing and sank into them before bursting out once more with even more vigor. The Norskins watched in stunned silence as the, the vines bore the corpses of fallen humans and greenskins alike into the air, thousands of bodies hanging like obscene fruit from the twisting brown-gray thickets that sprouted around the clearing. The magical vegetation grew from coiling shrub to copse to forest in the space of a few minutes, forming a giant dome 
of entwined vines above the cheering Norskins. A temple to Nurgle's boundless life had been born from the field of corpses that Speem's men had scattered across the sacred heartlands of the spider god. And they Nothing. go on to talk about, yeah, 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 wresting control from the goblins who'd harnessed this magical power and, and handed over t- uh, to Nurgle. So, yeah, poor goblins. Not only did they get just utterly destroyed, but then their sacred lands are, are taken over. Truly desecrated. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So there's a great description of what's happening to the uh, greenskin lands here and what Gutrat Spume and his company are, are doing. Across the blood-slicked clearing, hundreds of greenskin guts were opened by swords, axes, and knives, their stinking offal held high in celebration of the glorious foulness that births new life. A sacred sight, said Gutrot Spume, his tentacles cleaning themselves of clotted gore. Indeed, said Eogric, his brass tones resonating behind his one-horned helm. Yet this forest has vegetation enough our passage remains barred. Almost as soon as the axeman had finished his sentence, the throttle vines at the south of the clearing writhed with life. Intertwined with the branches of the Drakwal's native foliage, they constricted to pull apart the twining boughs and undergrowth until they formed the walls of a wide, vine-vaulted corridor that headed due south. Offer greatness to the gods, and they will offer gifts in kind, said Spume, his chest puffed out. If that leads where I think it leads, said Eogric, we may yet outpace the Glockkin. So that's pretty cool, and again goes back to gut rot, just gut rot spume, just wanting to get there first and um, try and seek the glory for himself. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah, gut rot. I find to be a very compelling character. Um, maybe it's because they go into great detail about his combat prowess. Yes, they do. Um, I think, in a way, I find him maybe slightly similar to Otto. A lot of the mm. way in there in their motivations and the way they act and the, the fact they're both very sort of um, good fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I would have liked to have seen a bit more of, of gut rot. Like as we'll get onto later, we see Otto in one-to-one combats, which are very interesting against worthwhile uh, opponents, which we don't really see that so much with a uh, spume. But I mean, I do hope they keep these characters about because I think there's definitely potential for them to, to, to be built upon and be even more interesting. Agreed. agreed. Yeah, I I hope they do. Especially, you know, a lot of these characters have their own dedicated model. That would lead me to believe that, yeah, they should be around for quite some time. Yeah, I hope so. And, uh, yeah, despite Spume not really fighting anyone worthwhile, the the one description of him, yeah, I suppose his blood and everything is wrought with poison. The uh, the spider riders that are trying to inject their own poison into his bloodstream and then are in turn being poisoned. (laughs) tenfold and and sort of melting from within. I thought that was a very interesting uh, description there. So, yeah, we'll take a break there and we'll come back with uh, the continuation of Chapter 3. The humid miasma festered subterranean laboratory, a cauldron of molten flesh bubbled hot. A grotesque face rose above it, toad-like in its warty width and the croaks that issued from between its blubbery lips. The vision burbled and muttered as Dr. Festus cut up a human hand on a nearby bench, taking the care of a gourmet chef preparing a feast for the emperor. Whoops a gravy, beggar's crumb. Rubbled Kugoth in the steam. Finger more and skip 
the thumb. Yes, yes, said Festus, waving away the apparition's concern. I have spent over a year studying the seventh ingredient, you know. But be your recipe shrouding spiced nearly, dear? Not as yet, Kugath, though the little fellows are helpful enough. They oughtn't beam. My glovely hand hath ensured it, said Kugath. They have worked a great deal of Nurgle's magic thus far, said Festus. The outdoor streets are choked with shroud smog, and slime life breaks out everywhere. After eventide, the shadows writhe most pleasingly. I can almost smell the garden. A grateful truth, Sechalich, replied Kugoth. All hordes congeal, glots, and spumelings. Snails slow no more. Not since father's finely tunnels yawned. I have ensnored even demon breeder hath mustered in his path. Kugat's grin grew smug, a pair of glistening bubbles popping in his eyes. Oh, yes, the tallyman is expectorant. So, demon spew should expect a muster, eh? And with Epithemius the tallyman? Then all shall be well. Assuming, that is, you stop your babbling and let me finish my work in peace. Kugat's hideous visage twisted into a sulky pout. Aghast, then, or shall belabor no more, he said, his image vanishing with a wet pop. Many thanks, said Festus, plucking a ladle from the cauldron. Now then, little shroudlings, he crooned, holding the utensil near the flagstone. Come to Festus. And we're back and talking about Blockhead Chapter 3, The Deluge of Talibine, in the year 2525 of Our Lord the Emperor. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so um, we get in here, and we're back in the far north, and here we're getting the uh, Maggot Lords sort of journey here. Um, Gut Rot Spume gives the wolf bite to the champions of Icehorn Peak. Now, uh, these are those devotees of Nurgle. They're equal to a dozen men. They're each several centuries old. I thought this was interesting. They are hundreds of years old. You know, several, you figure at least three centuries, you know. So these guys are at least 300 years old, maybe more. Uh, You got Orgot's demon spew, the bastard king. He's like half demonic already. Uh, Blob Rotspond, the Lord of Demon Flies, and Morbidex Twiceborn, the Master of Nurglings. I like him. He's the jovial one. He's always smiling and laughing, and little little demon mites are always sort yeah. of... Now I'm going to slit your belly. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> um, so what's going on here? Otto Glott, uh, he reaches Brass Keep in the middle of the mountains and enlists the Nurgle worshippers' aid. So he, Otto Glott goes and gets these guys and says, I need you guys. Uh, Orgot Demon Spew jumps at the chance. He's, he's another one of these guys who's been doing so much for so long, he's ready to become a demon, like he's about to be raised up. And he's been waiting for you know, that opportunity to do that big thing. 
and helping take down Eldorf and finally drop the Empire of Men in the name of chaos uh, is, is he, he he sees that as just the thing to do. So I know this, these three get on their pox maggots and they go alone. They're just like we're going. Uh, they're not sharing their glory. They're just leaving. So they take the boat, um, and Blob uh, casts his little sorceries. He's the you know the Rotspawn is is the sorcerer of the group again. You get sort of this similar. You get the you know the more warrior based one, the wizardy one. You know again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uh, sort of the trifecta is a common theme throughout the book, isn't it? With right notes. Well, and even Chris, remember when we were first reading a, a couple episodes back, we. Uh, you introduced the show with the three parts of Nurgle, mm-hmm. remember? And yep. we talked about how it was in one of the uh, White Dwarfs, how they talked about how Nurgle has, like, the, the warrior aspect, the plague aspect, and the, the, the you know, the, the magical, the magical aspect. aspect. Yeah. So, so he gets this thick... W- <laughs> uh, his, the sorceries are growing thick walls of noisome meat on the ribs of the hull. So... <laughs> Noise some meat? Yes. What does that mean? Well, uh, thick walls of flesh that are making some sort of noises. Oh, oh. audible noises. Yeah, on on the <laughs> ribs of the hull. Um, they've got mammoth skin sails on this ship. Um, and gut rot spume's kraken helps it along. So, you know, he's got a little kraken, apparently, that he's got under control, sort of like uh, mm-hmm. Davy Jones. Sure. And... Uh, even attacking Empire and uh, the thing, yeah, if there's any Empire at Hyle ships that get too close, the Kraken goes after it and takes them down. So these guys can get through pretty quickly. In a week, it's in the Gulf of Kislev. It's just like, shroom, one ship gets through quick. And it's it just through by the three of them, isn't it? There's no, they haven't got anyone else helping them. It's just them and their magics. Exactly. Yeah, and then, and they're, ha- and they're handling it. They're getting it done. You know, there's, it, it's no joke. So um, they get off the ship and they go. They skip past Erengrad uh, on their way towards Talapheim. Uh and they're just going to go right through the Middle Mountains and come at Eldor from the east. It's a hard way to get through, but their 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 creatures are like they can apparently walk on anything. Like they're they're up in the mountains, they can get across ice and all that stuff. So yeah, nothing's going to stop these guys. Yeah. I mean, they could just go, I mean, across the mountains, they could walk sideways, they could walk along the walls, the ceilings, whatever. They are odd-looking things, aren't they, when you look at the model? They're sort of, they're almost a bit ape-like <laughs> in a weird sort of way. Yeah. Kind of walking on their knuckles. In a yeah. Sense. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, much more strength in their hands and their arms, just sort of like, you know, running across, you know, and, and moving quickly. So okay, so they get there, and I love this. They're seen by uh, some some of the Kislevite scouts, but they let them pass through because basically, you know, there's these pox maggots. Word of the plague is spreading, and they see these giant maggot riders thing going through, and they're like, ugh, you know, they're probably bringing. There's only three of them, and we keep hearing about this plague stuff. Listen, I'm not getting in danger of contracting the plague and spreading the plague for three riders. So they just basically are able to bypass almost all the Emperor's defenses because there's just a few of them, and they're moving through some pretty treacherous lands, and nobody wants to deal with them. So, But what's great, uh, Orgots is just like, listen, I am not waiting until we get to Altdorf to fight. 
He's like, once we get some guys behind us, because they're going to stop at one of this. There's a, they, they know a place along the way where they can stop, and there's some Nurgle worshippers they can sort of pick up right before the fight. But he's like, once I've got these guys, we're sacking the next city I see. He's got ambition. He's just like, listen, if you think I'm waiting till till Gehemans well, get bored, yeah, I'm not waiting till Gehemans knocked for a fight. As soon as once we got our once we got our crew, I'm taking down the first thing I see. Uh, which is just, I thought it was so, so funny. Uh, and meanwhile, Festus is in Altdorf, and Kurgoth is coming to see him, and they're plotting their plagues and biding their time, just getting all their little poisons and things ready. I love the interplay between the, the two of them. It is just so good. I know we mentioned it, but uh, it, it's just so great. Just the, you know, the little demons, and everyone talk. and I love how... Uh, Kirgath Plague Father doesn't speak properly. Like he uses all the wrong words. Mm. It's fun. It, yeah, it's quite fun to read, though, isn't it? You almost sort of almost sing it along in your head as you're reading it, and it's yeah, it's it's funny. Oh yeah, and it says they're singing in parts. Like I found myself singing along, and it's so funny because I actually was singing it almost like uh, if you ever heard the the guy uh, who reads the Lord of the Rings books, uh, the books on CD. Uh, he sings all the parts, and like he, they had all this stuff from Tolkien about how some of the songs went, and he sings them in that sort of you know that old style. And I, I've heard the books on CD so many times. When I heard him walking around singing these little songs, it just fell right into that for me. That sort of fantasy song uh, thing going. I really enjoyed it a lot. I suppose it serves to uh, not humanize, but make them relatable in some sense. I mean. Nurgle players out there are going to want to play this army, and right. this helps make that army and this experience more likable. And it's it's funny because they they're just the most. I think they they seem they feel to me to be the most fleshed out of the armies. No pun intended. Um, there's just you know, it, you know, corn. It's like okay, I want to play corn. Kill, kill, right. kill, kill. And then you get the Sigvald, and ooh, you know, <laughs> and Zinch is this sort of weird, unknowable sort of you know. You never know what he's up to. Exactly. Things are always changing. But there's Nurgle. It's like, he's just sitting around. I love all my children. I love to spread these diseases. They're all just so like, there's just, there they're seems always, to be. They're always having fun, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's like a perverted them. Santa Claus, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> just wants to bring joy to the world. <laughs> it's just, it's really weird. And it's it's so relatable. It's, it's one of the things that I really loved about Nurgle. It's just like this this sort of bizarre. Papa Nurgle was the thing of all the chaos guys that drew me to him. I almost kind of wish Nurgle wasn't the powerhouse it has become in this edition because I'd like to play, you know, I'd, I'd you keep, know. Keep him uh, in underdog status? Well, yeah, it's just, you know, everyone's, oh, that wall of Nurgle, you, you know, like the black, you know, it's just, it's that push it forward type of thing going on with it. And it would just be a little more fun if there was a little more something to it, I think. But, all right, so now I like this part. It cuts to Vlad. Vlad is on the Stir Road. Uh, I'm right around on page 60. And, like, he hears that gut rot is stuck in the drack wall. You know, and he hears that he's there. Now, he sees that the land itself is transforming. These throttle vines and creeper plants are starting to cover the whole forest, the stuff that when he broke his jar. Uh, anywhere near the waterways, you've got this, you know, the, the moss, the moss, the grave moss. Here you've got these plants, and I love there's human bodies caught up in the plants. Like, they'll catch you in your sleep and, like, attack you and string you up as apparently as food. 
It's like uh, fruit, right? Rotten fruit hanging from yeah. a tree, that sort of thing. There it is. Here and there, decomposing bodies hung in the mass, dangling by the dozens like a hangman's dream. The long dead were present in great number. Vlad even recognized the signs of his master Nagash's influence upon many of the corpses. Mere weeks after the energies of undeath had spilled across the land, they'd been stymied by a supernatural plant that polluted more of the forest every day. A great magic had been set loose, and the chaotic forces of life were claiming the lands from the dead. That's just such a great image of this stuff just growing everywhere. Like, it's not even safe. If you're a traveler on the road, you can't go off on the side of the road and go to sleep because you might never wake up because the plants themselves. Yeah, it's not even safe for for Vlad. He's saying about how he doesn't even want to get near it as he's going along. It's it's trying to come him even. Uh, And he he, he sort of grimaces as he goes past it and doesn't want to sort of keep anywhere near it. Yeah. I mean, there's living, undead beastmen, all of it tangled up in here. He actually... Like, he sees the bodies, and there's a tendril pushing into its mouth. Like, pushing, and remind you, I thought of Alien. Like, there's tendrils from the plants pushing into the mouths of these bodies that they have wrapped up. Uh, vine tips digging into the skin. Uh, and the plants are, like, feeding off. Now, Vlad turns himself into a mist to get closer because he doesn't want anything to touch it. And I love this. He turns uh, ethereal or into mist, and so does his weapon, but it can still cut. Like, it still works, even though it's in mist form. So Blood Drinker, you know, cuts into these plants, and then it's kind of gross. In fact, what does he say? Uh, they ignored his presence altogether, bidding themselves with their slow but constant. He pulls Blood Drinker, cut one of the thickest branches of the colossal throttle vine that choked the forest. A vile-smelling sap leaked out. Its poisonous stench so powerful that Vlad recoiled even in his spirit form. This was not the magic of mankind. To achieve such raw foulness would take something far more powerful. Unbound life, spreading uncontrollably, consuming and taking over those who tried to impose order on the world. It could only come from one source, the agents of chaos. So he recognizes it right away for what it is. It's it's funny. It's, it's so powerful that even this mighty vampire kind of recoils like, ugh. Yeah, and he's in, he's in, he's in mist form. Like, still recoils. And he can still smell it. It's yeah. like it's still gross. Now, Sylvania is likely resistant because of the magic that's already there, all the stuff that's around Sylvania. So he's not so worried about it. But the rest of the empire is in danger, and he's like, ugh. And he's like, I'm going to have to defend the empire. And leave. he goes, he wanted to go check out Sylvania, but he's like, ugh, I got to go help. And Nagash told him, you got to help the Empire to hold off this stuff. So now he's got to go help them again, you know, because otherwise he's not going to get Isabella. Right. Uh, and there's, a, I love how there's a greater prize at stake. Order itself. He is, he really is part of Nagash's sort of. He's he's on board with the plan. His school this, of thought, right? Yeah. This 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 order. Uh, you know, he doesn't want everything on the planet to be dead, because then what's there to rule over? But he, you know, hey, you got order. Law and order is important. He's very much a law and order sort of guy. Well, I think it's a matter of control. He wants yeah. to control everything. Exactly. Chaos, that's against the very nature of chaos. Right. Um, I mean, it's. I find when we first heard of Vlad coming back and agreeing to be a Mortark for Nagash, it seemed his whole sort of focus and the impression I got, it was all he was doing it because he wanted to bring Isabella back. And we, we touched on this previously, Chris. Um, and it, now we sort of see more that that's not actually exactly all he's about. He does he does still care about Sylvania because it was almost implied. I felt that 
he didn't really care about Sylvania anymore, and Manfred was going to try and keep that for himself. But oh, it wasn't implied. He flat out said, "I don't care if he he thinks I care about Sylvania. I care about a much. I got a. Well, he always wanted to have the whole empire, didn't he? Because yeah. it was like this. Sylvania was just a starting point. That wasn't the big deal for him. But it seemed like to me that his big deal was Isabella, and I think we don't get, you don't get that at all from this book. His actions and saying he, it ghouls him to leave Sylvania and trying to get himself uh, in, in as an elect account. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to sort of further that agenda. I, I don't. Well, I don't know. I've got a little part of it marked off here. It's actually, and it talks about that where you know you now he says how the the Auric Bastion was an obvious decoy, while they're all up there fighting. They're up there fighting at the wall. These guys are coming around, doing an end run around the wall. And they're weakening the empire from within. And he says, uh, action has to be taken lest the dullards of the, uh, the dullards of the civilized world realize their peril too late and allow their realm to fall into the hands of the dark gods. Should that happen, he would likely never find his lost love, Isabella. I still think that's important to him, but he's immortal. He's kind of got forever to get her. He needs to sort this first, and then he yeah. can get on that. And this is just, yeah, like you say, he's got forever. This is this is nothing. Yeah, worse still. Obedience and control would become outmoded notions, a fate contrary to everything Vlad had strived for. So, yes, he's in love and he wants to find Isabella, but this is kind of important. His, you know, his vision of what the world should be is going right out the window if he doesn't handle this. So, I love how he's become a hero of the Empire. I mean, I know he's got his own mo- motives, but... It, it is interesting. There's a passage that further humanizes him, and it, it talks about... Uh, you know, he's an all-powerful vampire and uses uh, his undead as basically cattle and sacrifices them sort of at will. Yeah. But on some level, he does care about even his cattle. Yeah. Right? He yeah. doesn't want to see them wasted or anything. So it kind of humanizes him in that respect. He still has that human empire sensibility to And him. aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's not human, but he still is. I mean, he's striving to control a human land with human ideals of justice and order and all these things in his perspective. He's an interesting character. So they've set up a, a great dichotomy between the order of the VC, they're trying to impose their will, versus uh-huh. you know the nature of chaos. Right. And I never thought of that. I just thought, okay, well, it's undead and demons, whatever. But it's it's an tr- interesting dynamic between the two. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, yeah, the, the Nagash book really set up that idea between ranked, regimented, everything is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And chaos, which isn't. But uh, I love when they get the letter from Vlad. This comes up. They get the, uh, they get a letter, and it shows up. And um, the guy they tell the, the guy who delivers it to read the letter. And as he starts reading the letter, the nervous kid starts reading with a little more force and, and authority. And as he's doing this, suddenly it's like, as he's reading, as you can tell Vlad has sort of taken over. Like the guy who's reading this is actually it's Vlad's voice coming through. And I'll help work. I'll be damned before I fight alongside the undead. And then he tells he tells that guy Zintler, look, just restore order, no matter what it takes. The city, I mean, riots are happening. I mean, he's out there, he's desperate. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I mean, they're they're there's there there his men are out there. I think it sounds to me like they're killing citizens as well. Like if you're going to sure. start rioting, we're going to. Oh yeah, they they it. put the foot down exactly. And I like how he's exhausted. He sits down on the on the stairs after they all leave. He's like just. He's like yelling at uh, orders, and then they go to walk away. And he stops the one guy. Just, just get it done. Yeah, and it's like wow, it's hard to be Carl France. <laughs> it really is. 
Um, but so now we get to the summer, and the rivers are choked with all this grave moss. There's a part later where the guys actually walk to where they need to yeah. be on the river because it's just you can so walk overgrown. on that moss. So gross. Uh, throttle vines have claimed the forest roads. You can't go through the forest anymore. Uh, cities are usually safe, you know, behind their walls. They're mm. covered in plague. Uh, anybody who drinks from the Reich anymore starts to the, – the, you drink that water and grave moss just starts growing out of you, and you're dead within days. Growing out at both ends. It's true, though. Gurgles away. Uh, the Reich and Telebeck rivers are turning black. Uh, and nobody's there's no more burials. You, can, you know, nobody's digging up anything. Everything's gross. So the undead are just everywhere. You die and you sort of get up. And if no one controls you, you just sort of ramble Wander about. Yeah. Uh, cannibalism starts spreading because people are afraid to eat anything that grows in a field, including the animals that are eating the the vegetation. They must be dying. So people start turning into cannibals. Um, it's a logical alternative. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then. Leon de Lancor shows up. He's back from serving Guy Le Breton. Um, he just he's he's been out. And I, okay, I don't care that they brought him back. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a. Oh no, he had to be dead. We never saw him. He was wounded. No, we did, we never thought. I don't think any of us hinted that he might be dead. Really, did we? When we went through that. I well, there's think. a small contingency of people out there who I'm not going to name names, Wayne Kemp, but. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, don't, I don't mean to tease Wayne. I mean, I, I get his thing. Dude, you got you know almost cut in half. You're laying in the field. You know, Either you're dead or you're not. Quit playing games with this whole stuff where, whoa, we're teasing you. But uh, he does. He shows back. And it, But they do. They just sort of drop it in really lamely, I think, here. It's just like, oh, he's back. He was serving there, and now he's back. He barely gets himself cleaned up. Like, he shows back up and starts, like, washing up from those long uh, thing he's been doing. Uh, for the king and uh, Helborg's plea for help arise, he prays for several hours, gets his knights together, and heads off. He basically says, hey, listen, we got to go. And they're like, but, you know, everything's bad here, too. No, no, we promised them, and if we don't keep our word, what good are we? You know, very, very honorable. Yeah, gives them that little rousing speech and heads, hey, they're the knights of Britonia. They're going to hold to their word. I did I did really sort of enjoy his little part here, This this... You can see how he's kept his lands together all this time, you know? Mm. I don't know. I guess I just, I've never been a huge fan of Britonia because it always seems like you've got the haves and the have nots and it's so extreme. It's like, oh, we're the knights and you peasants, we should, you know, you're, we, we, we're going to pee on you. You're not worth anything, you know? And it's just like. But in some sense, the, through the peasants' work and their support, that kind of elevates these knights and paladins to do what they need to do. Exactly. It just always seemed to me when I read it that these knights and paladins sort of don't seem to appreciate that what the peasantry is it, doing for them it's interesting you know on the one hand you have the vc that they're trying to humanize but then you have the, the bretonians that are kind of dehumanized in some respect a little bit but here you see him and it's like he's getting those knights together though he's he's still got that sense of honor what do you think he felt about um Gilly breton coming back do you think he is any part of him that resents having to sort of hand over the crown or Okay, they don't touch on it at all, at all. But I've always seen this as sort of an Arthurian legend, where Guy was like an Arthur. And okay, and you're British. I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, what if Arthur showed up? Wouldn't you kind of expect the current king to be like, "Holy crap, it's Arthur returned!" Okay, here's the crown back, Arthur. I mean, he's freaking Arthur, right? 
Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, he seems quite happy in his new role as they get onto in a bit as High Paladin, and he just seems to slip into that. And yeah, I, I feel like he's he's sort of happy to give it back over. He does. It's not really it's not really seen as a big deal. I don't think to him. Well, like you say, it's not it's not written any other way, is it? They don't go into it in any any detail at all, really. Yeah, I mean, they don't even address it. So your guess is as good as mine. But he does seem to fall into this role. But you know what I mean? The the the, the crown could be a heavy thing if the guy shows up. Who, you know, was the chosen one, the guy who, you know, forged your country, did all this stuff, and now he's back ready to take that crown? I mean, you're half dead, you're wounded, you go off, you come back, and basically, you know, this guy from Legend has come back and taken over. <laughs> okay, good, because I'm tired of that job. So, okay, meanwhile, the, the, the Maggot Riders are still going through the snow in the Middle Mountains, and they get to Brass Keep. Midsummer, and it says, and then they cross blades with these guys. Why are they fighting the Nurgle followers? Am I missing something here? Did I? Did anybody else question that? Well, maybe they just have to sort of assert their authority or something like that. You know what chaos can be like. But then I guess even as we said in chapter two, even the Beastmen, uh, Shaman, recognized the power of Spume and just sort of agreed to go along with them. So yeah, no, that is slightly bizarre, I suppose. It's yeah. the nature of chaos, I guess. You never know when they're going to fight or just... Yeah, I guess he shows up and they're like, why should we follow you? And he's like, I'll show you why. So then they, they, they beat the crap out of him and then they, they come with him. So now you're getting to midsummer where the twin moons are clashing in the heavens. Now this is cool. Thousands of beastmen all take place during, with this ritual while Mansleep is partially eclipsed by Morsleep. Uh, the Harbinger is the one performing this ritual. Uh, he's standing on a dolmen, you know, which is like the big, like almost a, like a doorway frame. Um, and he's standing with the largest corpse mound in the Drac vault behind him. So they've got this mound of corpses. In fact, it's so big that the herdstone that they're all dancing around, you can't see it. It's a lot of corpses. So the herdstone is literally covered in a mound of corpses. Not just around it, it is literally covered in corpses. Uh, so when the eclipse hits full... The Harbinger takes this little vial of demon blood he's got where, and he puts a couple of drops on his tongue and he's able to speak demon language. It actually says it's ripped from his throat. Uh, and it started, as you started out there, and uh, blood is squirting between, from, out from between his teeth as he's doing this. Um, there's, okay, and this is what basically happens. The world turns monochrome as the monolith inside the mound blazed a startling white for long seconds before exploding with a weight of tectonic force. A titanic boom resounded across the Drakvald as over a hundred herdstones detonated simultaneously, each to be replaced by glowing portals to the other world. So are all the herdstones gone now? Oh, you can no longer take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, or maybe if they exploded, maybe there are lots of little shards of herdstone around. So now you can just put it in your pocket and get a little bonus. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, so every herdstone just turned into a, uh, is, is now a, a hole. Portal. Yeah, it's a portal. So, um, the, you hear this bell ringing, and I love the bell ringing because they nurgle. All of his guys have those yeah. little plague, the, 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 the tolling bell. Million, a million fat-bodied demon flies gushed out in reality, and beastmen start howling. Plague bears come marching out in these herdstone-shaped holes in reality. Um, 
Oh, and I love that. Now, meanwhile, you've got the Supreme Patriarch, the Amber Wizard, Gregor Martok. He's the guy from the the model, the one who could take the two-headed... The Griffin. Griffin. Yeah. So he's sleeping in the stables. He doesn't like sleeping in the old Patriarch. He doesn't like Gelt's... With all the fanciness and stuff, he likes sleeping in the animals, like sleeping in the... He's a true nature boy. Exactly. I mean, literally. I mean, the Amber Wizard, sleeping in the stables, you know, smelling the animal Ah. poop and stuff like that. That's like where he's comfortable. It's how they refer to it. What did he close it? (laughs) Urine sodden hay. Yeah, he's Uh. sleeping in the urine sodden hay. (laughs) Yuck. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Get the full thought, impact of nature, I yeah, suppose. You guys think Nurgle's gross. Let's get the Amber Wizards out here. <laughs> this guy's not any better. Now, he, he has another dream of Tall, which we had just seen earlier. Yeah. He's in wooden armor, and he's lying down, and grave moss is spreading all over him. And this sky maiden, this goddess, tries to heal him, and she's begging him, be strong, hold on, we, we can do this. And she's begging him to hold out and, and to, to be strong. So, you know what, we'll, you know, we are going to stop here. Uh, we'll stop here, and then we'll come back and, and quick wrap up Chapter 3, and then get into the meat of Chapter 4. Okay. Okay. Hey guys, I know this isn't a regular commercial, um, but we got a shout-out sponsor. Um, If you guys remember when we first started doing this, when we had no sponsors, we would do shout-outs for donations. Now, with voicemail and everything else, we just do pretty much whatever people send in. However, we did get an email from Kevin Schwendman, Schwendman, I hope I pronounced that right, Kevin Schwendman. and um, he's actually uh, starting up a online uh, gaming store. And uh, so he asked if I would uh, talk to you guys a little bit about his gaming store. And um, I totally forgot on the last episode. And rather than make him keep waiting, I figured we could just stick it in right here as a regular commercial break. So um, here's what he would like you guys to know. Uh, Do you have any miniatures to sell? Are you tired of those other selling and auctioning sites taking too large a bite out of your profits? Then march your way to MarketplaceGaming.com, the newest online source for new and used games. We are new to the scene and looking for sellers to join ranks and make MarketplaceGaming.com the stop for all things games. Whether you are a garage gamer wanting to flip his army or a friendly local game store looking to develop an online presence, we can help you out. From minis, terrain, and how-to guides to board games and collectible card games, our goal is to connect gamers to games and games to gamers. Like them on Facebook at Marketplace Gaming and drop them a line at MarketplaceGaming.com. Buy, sell, game. So, um, basically, that's what he's doing. He's trying to build a, this resource. Uh Basically, local game stores can get an online outlet for themselves set up, um, things like that. Uh, basically, guys, go give him a check it out. Check it out. Um, he's trying to do something a little different here. 
and um, hoping that uh, we get a reaction. Go check it out and let him know what you think. Please leave him some feedback, and please let him know you heard about him on Garage Hammer. Uh, thank you all very much for listening, and now back to the gross with Glotkin. Is that urine I smell? <laughs> no, I went. I wiped and everything, so. Ugh. What is, it's just gross. It is gross. <laughs> it's such a real, like, grisly world, though. Really tactile. Uh, yeah, they do paint. I mean, there's, you're not walking away from this feeling like the world hasn't been, the, the finer details haven't been painted in for you. You know? Yeah. I, I really en- enjoy that. So, all right. So we're back to the story. Tomlin, you're still with us, right? I'm here. I'm Excellent. Here. Okay. So Or got demon spew. He goes through the middle mountains. Um, he, he negotiates the icy cliff with the ease of apes swinging through the jungle. Uh, so once again, that whole picture of them like walking on their knuckles like right. gorillas. Um, the three Magath riders and the repugnots of Brasky. The repugnots. That's such a great name. It's like the Argonauts, except we're gross. <laughs> the Repugnauts. <laughs> repugnauts. <laughs> so they get across in months instead of the year that most armies would take to cross this thing, because basically even the Repugnauts can either follow behind or they're riding on the maggots with these guys as they just plow through the, the land. It's good timing. So now they're at Talapheim, which is the eye of the forest. Now, I like this place. The city is within the walls of a giant inactive volcano. So it's like a low volcano. Then they're inside that. Sure. It's a natural uh, enclosure. Makes sense. So they're inside there. The main gates are shut, barred, and magically sealed. So you got the triple. We closed it. We locked it. And throw some magic on it. Right. We also put a couple. <laughs> we we also dragged a couple of chairs and wedged them under the doorknob. Right. You know, it's like all the dead bolts are exactly. Bought. But it's great because these things can climb anything, so they just climb right over the side of the volcano mm. walls, and uh, they jump in there. Now they wait till night. They jump in there. Now within minutes, they're ransacking the city. I kind of love this. Like it's a big city, but I mean, how big can it be? It can't grow past its size because the sure. volcano sort of rings it. But it's a powerful city. It's got a lot of people. You got three riders and this one group of this of these these repugnants. The repugnants. Who Not the repugnants quickly? Are they? Do you think they're going to be blight kings? That's what I thought. That's what I thought as well. I pictured them as blight kings as well. And is there a? Is there a Yeah, if you look at the picture of the Repugnots on page 67, those look like blight kings. Those things are huge. Yeah. yeah. That's actually the models as well. Yeah, uh, they yeah. they look just like the models exactly. So they must be the blight kings. So you've got those guys. So, you know, and you know, they're big. They're so tough. They're on 40s. So, you know that these guys each one is worth at least two of a normal guy. So they get in there, and in the middle of the night, they just start ransacking. Now, they're, luckily, there's a celestial wigger, wizard, uh, Jerovangian, who warned the guard. The celestial wizard saw them, like in his mind, saw them coming over the walls and said, oh, my gosh, and warns them really quick. 
And uh, so the attackers kill dozens, and then they kill hundreds. But the fact is they're just outnumbered. I mean, there's three of these. I mean, they're big, and they're, they're each guy is worth a dozen men, plus his rider, plus the repugnants, but... Against thousands of militia. They're, yeah, they're taking on a whole city. Um, if they hadn't rallied the guards so quickly, I think they could have done a lot more damage. Sure. But once the word got out, you know, the city's big enough where they just couldn't get to everything in time. So the repugnants start getting killed, and so Orgot says, hey, fall back. So they climb out the way they came in with half the numbers. So they kill, I mean, they killed hundreds and hundreds and lost, I mean, how big can those riders be? They could have only had a couple dozen, what, 50, 60 of these repugnants, I'm guessing. Well, the repugnants are basic lord level type characters in terms or hero of level at least yeah yeah i mean they'll they, they, yeah put on so a i mean you figure it through, and they're all riding those pox mag sure so they they you know they couldn't have, it's not like there's hundreds of them riding on it but they're powerful and they take so they come with half so as they get out of the forest epidemius the taliban shows up and uh he's got a whole army with him as well as a bear. Well, yeah, because all those plague bearers just—I mean, a million of them—just came out of all these, all these herdstone portals. So, Thanks to the beastmen, so who did the summoning? So yeah, big played by the beastmen there for a change. Yeah, the beastmen are the guys who uh, who who turned the tide here. They are. So Orgot sees it and he bows. He sees who Epidemius is right away, and he's just like, you know, oh, you know. Bows to Epidemius. He says, hey, listen, it's a nice lot of foot troops you got here, but uh, you ain't getting through those walls on foot. It's not happening. You're not gonna. You, you cannot take this place with infantry. So Epidemius doesn't say too much. He just taps over at the jar, and so they build this big smoky fire and they put the jar on the fire. I love how they just know instinct. Like they all just know instinctually like, how to. Oh, it's time. Build well, the fire. Yeah, well, I mean, we're here and we can't do it, but I mean, I wouldn't have thought to build a fire and throw the jar on it. It's like Epidemius knows somehow. Just... I'm sure there's a label that says, when sacking city, build fire and apply. <laughs> 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 the instruction label, warning, don't inhale directly. You're right. Keep refrigerated. <laughs> so the smoke turns a thick white, a really thick, heavy white, and starts. it starts storming the rain is pus and infected blood. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh, the the sewers back up. So the sewers to drain back up because it's all pus and blood, which is thick. So it's not draining properly. So the rain starts. Ri- so now people are walking around in ankle deep pus and, and, and infected blood. The crater becomes a big pond, right? So people start. Fleeing, there's like we got to. They have to leave the city. They can't stay there. It's too much. They got to go. So they start to leave, and um, they're like, "We're going to go get the people who did this to our city." So they start marching out of the city. I mean, they don't start. I mean, to their credit, they don't just run out helter skelter and get slaughtered. Well, they, they yeah, they're organized. Yeah, they come they up by know, the regiment. Yeah, they were just attacked. They know what's out there, and so they get prepared and they get ready to leave. Now you get the Battle of Talibine. Over a thousand warriors come out. Just ready to go, and they've got zealots, artillery. They've even got a steam tank. But the 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 size of the the plague bearer forces is just. I mean, they're outnumbered by way too much. Um, they're trapped between this crater and the demons, so they have no choice but to fight. So the plague bearers are coming forward slow and steady, and they're just impaling themselves like they got all the you know. 
they're standing in their formations with their pikes out and their you know, and so the, the they just keep walking forward like Whoop, I'm impaled now you can't stab anything with this. Boom. Yeah, they don't care. Yeah, uh, the next just one comes through. Press the bodies. Um, I love I love this part how just them being close is dangerous as the soldiers. If they get close enough to touch one of the soldiers, they get infected and start getting sick and spreading it right away. So just them getting close. So then you get this this Captain uh, Captain Raban Grace. He rallies the troops and puts up a fight. Uh, he kills off ten percent of Epidemius's army in an hour, which you know is pretty good. I think it's a pretty good chunk. All things being equal, uh, you know you can't uh, you can't last the. That long, he doesn't have ten hours. But I like this. I like the description of him. He was surly and bad tempered at the best of times, and the great deluge drove his mood from foul to apoplectic. <laughs> uh, so his grumpy demeanor and no nonsense approach won him few friends during his rise through the ranks. It only enhanced his reputation as an effective commander. So this is the guy who's out there and just starts wiping them out. I love the bronze balls, the 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 yeah, the arch, the the, uh, the the gunners. They're called the bronze balls because they're so accurate with their shooting, and they're, they're like, "That's not the only reason we're called that." <laughs> Typical guys. <laughs> yep, yep. Wasn't it also because their ammunition was made of bronze? Or well, yeah. Is that my mistaken. Well, yeah, but okay. then of course you ask them. They're like, "Yeah, that's not the only reason we're called that." Uh So they're shooting down plague drones. They're shooting down riders. One of the plague drones swallows their captains. Like a snake would swallow a cat. It just lands on it with that. I'm picturing the like the sucker face version. Yeah. It just yeah, lands yeah. and... <laughs> just and then that poor sergeant is still alive. His muffled screams ripped away what was left of the bronze ball's courage. And they run. Yeah, that's so gross. Ugh. I'm sorry. I keep using that word too much. I apologize. I use it almost as much as that Chris Tomlin guy says literally, actually. Literally, basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have an episode named that? I think so, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> these guys drop half the drones, though, and that's a pretty good shooting, dropping half those plague drones uh, before they run. Uh, and they open up on the, They open up with them with the artillery starts opening up on the drones. Mm-hmm. The steam tanks shoots... Uh, excuse me, that was a yawn. Uh, the steam tank shoots Morbidex's maggot with a cannon, but it just starts healing up because, you know, regen rules. Sure. Um, when those three riders hit the lines, they just start eating the Empire soldiers. They just start chewing through them. Uh, one of the Al- Amber Wizard turns himself into a manticore, but uh, going up against the Pox Maggot, uh, he's just—he's got no he's chance. Out, he's outmatched there. For the Mountain Chimera, wrong yeah. option. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He turns himself into a manticore, which is still tough, but they basically just. Whoop the crap out of this guy. Whoever that is, definitely newbie to the tournament scene. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he didn't have the model painted, so he could yeah. really come with the a fluff man. choice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, etc. Comp. He wanted. He could oh, get the better. Nice. Had to get the better points. No, so Epidemius is just counting away, like counting because they got all these things, counting all the new diseases, mm. counting all the all the people that are made, and the steam tank gets by, and he sends the beast of Nurgle at it, and the the of course what happens when a beast of Nurgle goes against the steam tank? Cannon, and two cannons kill anything. Yep. So 
Then he sends a bunch of nurglings and another beast of Nurgle. And this time, this is great. The nurglings clog up the cannon. Yeah, by squishing his butt into it, into the gun barrel. Yeah, they basically <laughs> climb into the gun barrel and clog it up with all their nurgly nastiness. So the next time they fire the cannon, the cannon just explodes. And so it's like a jammed weapon. So the cannon just explodes and the steam tank blows up. The steam so, tanks are really get worked over in this book. Well, killed by nerglings. <laughs> that sucks. That's that's the point where you say, "I quit this tournament." That's it. I'm going home. You know, no one. If you had a player that's reading this for the first time and they don't know any better, like, "Oh man, I'm going to totally stock up on nerglings. They're going <laughs> to rule the world." Well, they also you read this, dude. I know they always said there's only about eight steam tanks, but it seems like more than that got destroyed already in the last two books. It just seems like. They must be cranking out a few more or something like that. Well, I think at Altdorf, there are four stationed in that city alone. Right. And they really get worked over in that one. Yep. And there were some, weren't there some in the first book at the uh, uh, battle at the Orc Bastion? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's going to be no steam tanks left. Ninth edition, that's not even going to be in the list. You might as well just use it as a unit filler. As, yeah, there as, you go. You know, a, a, something to carry your... Mm. Because, dude, they get blowed up, and they get blown up bad. But this breaks them. They basically, at this point, they're running for Altdorf. Once they lose the steam tank and some of their best men. and uh, Their the, city's a pool of blood and pus. <laughs> blood and pus is just gunking out. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. Just all this. I'm just picturing all this thick yellow or this thick red blood pouring out with this thinner yellow goop sort of, you know, between it. Swirled in. Yeah. It. Just like, uh yeah. Thank you for that mental image. Oh, there you go. I'm try- I, hey, I do my best. All right, so let's finish up this chapter then. So Festus is walking around Altdorf, pulling scoops of his concoctions around the city. I love this part. He walks up, and some lady's got like, I mean, like she got her flower bed out there, and there's like, I just, I just keep picturing some lady like putting an apple pie out on the, mm-hmm. out on the ledge to cool, and he like walks by and takes a scoop of his poison, pours a little in there, right. walks by. Puts a little into plants, walks by. He's just passing out the poison. There's Festus, just humming and having a good time. It's, it's, it's fun. So, a hundred leagues to the west, the Glotkin and their men, they sack Karaburg, and now they're just walking down the Reich River. This is what I said. There's so much moss, they can just walk on the river. So, they don't need the boats anymore. They're just marching. At Could this make point. for a good display board. Oh, that could be cool. An overgrown river, like just covered with moss. Yeah. Oh, that's an idea. Too bad I don't have that army. So the great in the great mountains to the west, they got a king who's near a hundred years old and looks in his prime. Comes in. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, this is the part there. The gray mountains. The king. I didn't know the emperor was near a hundred years old. I didn't either. It's not the emperor, is it? Who isn't this the part? Because it's talking about it being on a hippogriff, so that's... With... Oh, you're right, it's not. So then, wait, who is this? See, I, um, when I was talking to Scott about this, he think, I think... I think it is Leon, uh, Leon Kua, but they refer, mistakenly refer to him as the king. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, you're right. It's, yeah, he's on the hippogriff, that's right. I mean, if if the model... And, I mean, he's normally on it. I don't know, it just doesn't... I don't, this doesn't read right, does it? You're right, it's not Carl, because that's right. When I first read I'm like, oh, here, okay, here comes Carl, and it's like, oh, no, wait, it's not him, because... But if it's, if it's Leon Kua, he's not the king, so... Oh, well, he's not... Well, he was a king, and good he was enough. king of Bretonia. Uh, well, no, because the 
No, because now what's his name? Um, Guy. Guy is back as the king. So, but he was a king. He's still king. I guess he's demoted to steward or yeah. something. They call him a high paladin. The high paladin. A high yeah. paladin. Okay. It's a pretty cool title. I think. Yeah. Oh. So okay, in the Grey Mountains, this near a hundred years old looks in his prime, comes in on a hippogriff with his troops. Okay, and here's the list of all the troops because it's just too damn long to go through and write it down. Nearing his hundredth year on a hippogriff, the head of an armored column wide enough to fill the mouth of Axbite Pass. Above him, Pegasi churned the eventide skies with graceful white pinions, and around him the finest knights of the generation rode proud. Their ancestral colors were already matted with the blood of one battle too many, but they would not be found wanting in their allies' hour of need, for honor ran in their veins as sure as blood. Demon spawn spilled from the sloshing white floods of Talibime streets, emerging to clamor over the city's crater walls. The Magath riders won many allies with their latest victory, among them a Minotaur tribe from the forest. The horde's scent trails were still strong, slowly at first, but with gathering surety, the newly arrived demons followed the half-mortal warlord and the metallic tang of the brass bull whose tribe had enlisted with the promise of carnage. Behind them followed a tapestry of terrors held together only by the the essence of chaos. The time of violent celebration was near. Uh, So then, basically, you get sort of... this This is that, like... This is the end of the second movie in the trilogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, here comes this guy. Carl Franz is wandering the Oslin Waste with Deathclaw and him, and they're both healing. Archeon gets on his ship and starts to head south. Uh, Kurgath is resting in Nurgle's garden, all pleased with himself. Uh, Munvard is on his throne, visiting Vlad to offer his help. The goddess with Tal and Ulrich are there, and Tal's, uh, is, his trouble is causing earthquakes. Yeah, Tal is, like, this this poison is killing him, and it's, yep. he's shaking. It's causing earthquakes in the world. The world is trembling. And just to note, Mundvard, this is where he has returned. Yes. He swum, yeah, swum out of the bay. <laughs> well, you know, just <laughs> throwing him in the water is not going to kill him. So here yeah. he comes back. No, I'm angry. These guys threw me in the water. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Oops. We also got to mention, sorry, before of the um, with the Minotaur tribe, you got uh, the Brass Bull. That's Torox. He's another special character as well. He gets a bit. Of oh, is that oh, what he right? is? Yeah, he comes in a bit later on as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I okay. I, like, I didn't realize. I remember yeah, him. Yeah, it's to all the special characters they have in. The, yeah, is he referred to as the Brass Bull? Yeah, that's his. He's called Torox, the Brass Bull, oh, and the I Beast. Yeah, he's the one who's got really good toughness and armor save, but if you like roll a six to hit and a six to wound or something, he automatically dies because you find the one chink in his arm. Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but no one's ever going to hit that six six. Oh, sure, no one would ever do that. It's impossible. Yeah, we'll just just bank that one for now. We'll uh, we might come back to that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then, finally, Kurt Helborg is just desperate. He hears the screams. He sees these armies coming toward him. There's plague running rampant. The city's going crazy. So he finally gets desperate, and he goes off, and he's going he's gonna to light the, sig- the signal fire that Vlad told him. Light the signal fire, and I'll know you need me, and I'll, I'll, I'll be there. So even he's had enough. He's like, it's time to make a deal. And so now everybody's coming here. This is actually, it's kind of really exciting. Everybody's now finally, after all these little battles and these little wars, and even the ones from the first book where people sort of disappeared, Everybody's showing up here for the showing for the up big for brawl. the big party. Yeah. 
I was to say, like, initially I thought the first three chapters were a bit sort of rinse and repeat where you've got the Glock here, then you've got Gut Rot, and then you've got the Magnus Riders doing their thing and getting there. But I actually think, in sort of reflection, the way it's set out to all... It all, it all brings it together nicely for a pretty uh, epic last chapter, as we'll find out. Well, and if you want, I mean, I could totally go in here and pull the English teacher thing and be the fanboy and point out the... Uh, the use of fairy tales, the lists of three, Nurgle's number is three. You've got the three armies coming in with the battles. Uh, you can go all the way back to Beowulf with the three trials, you know, having these three things, you know, that, that repeated three parts coming in and then having those that reach this culmination. Um, I really liked the structure of it, actually. Um, because even though it was like, you know, each, you know, each guy came, each guy released a jar, each guy did this. Each story was different enough and interesting enough and, and sort of gross enough in its own way that it <laughs> that it kept interesting, I thought. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do agree. All right. So, um, all right. You know what? Let's take uh, another uh, quick break, and we're going to come back with the exciting Chapter 4. Silence descended as Helborg's men waited expectantly around the throne room. Zintler was the first to break it. Surely, it cannot be. Vlad, my lord. An imposter, perhaps. The envoy said. Or a bluff. Actually, I doubt it, said Helborg, his expression cold. The Von Karsteins never stay dead for long. Gunthold, stop soiling yourself and read the damn thing! The envoy nodded hurriedly before pulling the scroll tight. My dear Elector Counts... He began, his voice timid. Or whomsoever the current incumbents may be. Helborg snorted in dark amusement at that. It was as close to an affirmation of the Reichsmarshal's self-appointed stewardship as Sintler had yet heard. It has no doubt come to thy attention, continued the young man, his voice growing more confident as he read the von Karstein's words, that our beloved realms have been assailed from within. Plague infest the lands from Marienburg to Kislev. Even my beloved Sylvania is threatened by unfettered growth. We find ourselves embroiled in a new war, one that mere bladesmen are ill-suited to fight. That much he has right, muttered Helborg, but the young man read on, talking over his master. It seems our lands play host to northern invaders of far greater subtlety than we have come to expect, said the envoy, his tone imperious. They and their plagues must be repelled if order is to be restored to our realm. The young man's accent was becoming thicker and deeper with every sentence, his spine straightening and his chin sticking out as he read on. To that end, I propose a temporary truce. More than that, I propose an alliance. We must ensure that these chaos-loving dogs... At this, the envoy spat blood and contempt. ...are put down, and their leaders shown their place... Only then can order be restored. The youth's tone was authoritarian and strange. Zintler shared a worried glance with Helborg, his hand straying to his sword hilt. The Reichsmarshal slowly shook his head, subtly motioning for Zintler to be still. Think well on it, the steward continued, his every syllable thick. I do not expect an immediate answer, for I know you mortals still fear death as the infant fears the darkness. If our thoughts are in accord... Light a flame from thy tallest tower upon the hour of midnight. Thy folk will have no more to fear from the forces of death. If such a signal is withheld, however, the fates shall be less kind. One day we shall discuss this matter in detail 
on this side of the grave or the other. Till then, thy fellow lord and monarch of the blood, Vlad von Karstein. As the last word left the envoy's lips, the young man staggered backwards, sucking in ragged breaths as if released from a strangler's grip. Blood trickled from his nostrils. Zintler stared in disbelief, blinking at the transformation that had overcome the youth. His skin was white as a trout's belly, his eyes bulging in panic above blue-gray lips. From brow to chin, his freckled face was seamed like that of a hag. "'Burn the letter immediately!' commanded Helborg. "'Burn it! Burn it and get this poor fool to the Temple of Shalia, even if you have to cut your way through those bloody fog lepers first. Tell the sisters he's a priority case!' Okie dokie, we are back. Yes, yes. Chapter 4. The yeah. Fall of Altdorf. In the year of our Lord, 2525. <laughs> Alright. The year of Sigmar. You're not speaking like a high up now. Right. <laughs> and, uh, can I just say, kudos to us for covering a book in less than seven hours. This is ridiculous. Well, I was just saying to Chris off air that uh, when we get on to Kane, that's where you might, you might have to be trying to shut me up on that one. <laughs> well, I'm thinking for that one, we'll probably have to do multiple episodes or recordings or something, because that's a big book, too. That's another big book with a lot yeah. going on. So, And I'm always happy to do multiple recordings. So. I know you are. <laughs> but in the meantime, final chapter of Glodkin. So give it to us, Mr. You. So we have Altdorf, and Altdorf is in a state. It's sunk in a greenish-yellow fog so thick that families and even military units have to tie themselves together lest they be lost. By rope. So yeah. you're all tied together on a rope. There are spider-like forms haunting hall- alleyways, but they're, they fade away when, when being chased. Um, and the fog renders many people sick, elderly and the infirm. They fade away forever. They just evaporate. Yeah. Uh, so and the city is infested with gnats, flies, mosquitoes. That it's impossible to sleep. I think the spider things in the shadows, where you see them in the fog and you go toward them and they run away, is probably the creepiest part, though. Yeah, that sounds horrible. That's the part that bothers me a lot. What that bothers me is why are people walking towards them? If I saw a spider-like <laughs> form, I wouldn't be walking towards it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you 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 win the point there. <laughs> you got to think like a horror movie, you know, oh, I'm going to go hide in the basement or, you know, let's go check out the roof alone in the dark. <laughs> hide yeah. behind those chainsaws. Right. Yeah. That, like the commercial. Like the <laughs> so uh, what else is going on? So, yeah, the, the Reichsmarshal and his men are powerless to stop this attack. You know, the, the, the gnats and the flies and the mosquitoes buzzing so loudly that people can't even sleep. That's uh, unsettling. Uh, that, uh so, yeah, they, they talk about how Kurt Hallborg held the city together through br- brutal suppression. So here you go. Riots are breaking out in the poor districts, and he just well, puts his foot down. And that's like martial law. I mean, that's just, that's the, you know, looters will be shot. On so, You know, it's just, there's, yeah. Yeah, his, his message is, keep a low profile or die like a dog in the gutter. <laughs> so he's not messing around. So through his, you know, brute force... Order has been restored, but many citizens like dead or dying in the streets. Uh, so, and that that'll be important later as this chapter develops. Yes. 
Uh, Reich's Marshal's Outriders journeyed far and wide and reported various plagues across the Empire and three distinct armies converging on Altdorf. Yeah. So then you have Helborg mustering his forces using refugee elements from all across the Empire, whoever's left, Talibine, Sternland, Karaberg, etc. He sends reinforcement requests to Kislev, Marienburg, Tilia, Astalia, even to the haughty Bretonians. Well, I thought Kislev fell. I mean, didn't we, weren't we have, I thought Kislev was totally destroyed. If you need help, I guess you'll ask for whoever's See if whoever's left is going to come, yeah. yeah. Well, he even asked help of the reclusive dwarves. Did they show up? Not in this book. Mm. Yeah, but no reply from them. <laughs> Had their allies forsaken them. <clears throat> so uh, that's the feeling, though. We're sending out messages to everybody, and they're not hearing from yeah, anybody. Because no let's face it, the Bretonians are flying in. Carl Franz is flying in. Nobody's actually there yet. All they have messages of is the Nurgle army's coming, and nobody's coming to save them. Mm. So that's got to be... Disheartening. Yeah, exactly. Talk about pressure. They still think Carl Franz is dead at this point as well, don't they? They're not. No one's aware. I don't think that no. he's alive. No, uh, nobody knows. Then they go into an interesting description about how the colleges of magic are pre- preparing the city for battle. I thought that was interesting. They have uh, the bright wizard, the bright college, scattering embers throughout the city so that they could flare up. You know, kind of like a bomb, a fire bomb at a moment's notice. Well, and I thought also a lot of the fire wizards, if they've got a source of fire around them, it's easier for them to start things going. So if you've got little fires all around, the work's already started. Yeah, yeah, that makes s- sense. Yeah, uh, you have the light college that's burning away the fog. Gray wizards brokering deals in the darkness. Uh, celestial astromancers, the, they're kind of foreseeing the timing of when exactly these armies are going to arrive. You have the healer priestesses of Shalia, who play a prominent role later, uh, setting up a triage to receive and treat the wounded. And you even have the city's ghosts sharpening swords and preparing the, at the behest of the Amethyst College. Would an ethereal sword need to be sharpened? <laughs> well, no, I was thinking that the ghosts were sharpening real swords, like actually going and lifting them up and sharpening. Oh, I, yeah, I guess that would make more they've sense. Got, they've got ghosts and spirits actually helping out. And, dude, I mean, say what you want. I mean, it's it's bad time. But talk about everybody pulling together. Like everybody has like, got a job mm-hmm. and they're doing it. They're like, this is it. This is our last stand. Yeah, so all, as all this preparation is, is going on, cadavers are left unburied. Uh, as a priority is on the defenses, but these would become weapons in their own right later on. Do you think Helborg is thinking about that? Not at all. I don't think so. I mean, he knows that's what Vlad uses. He know. I mean, he knows their mo. Don't bother getting rid of them. He's already broke. He's called Vlad. He's going to broker a deal with him. Why bury the the tools this guy's going to need if he's going to be able to help us? I, I think being the 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 everyday soldier that he is, I think that sort of thinking doesn't enter into his mind. That's my that's my. Thinking. I'm just I I have no opinion either way. But I don't think he likes some of the decisions he's being forced to to make, and I think he's only making them after a lot of thought. So I don't think these sort of things are sort of creeping into his mind sort of straight away yet. So yeah. All right. So so you have the twin-tailed comet lighting up the sky, turning the city, uh, bathing the city in a strange twilight. Uh, those who fled the city were. Oh, yeah, those fleeing the city are throttled in their sleep by the throttle vines. Oh, yeah, because yeah, where are they going to go? As soon as you try to go to sleep, you got to sleep where? Out on the road? Yeah. And as soon as you do that, the grass... They strangle you and hang you up like the, the fruit. Yeah. Oh, it's nasty. So, yeah, and morale is at an all-time low. Everyone felt that the, the Empire has already been beaten. 
Uh, and it is, it's, it, there's an interesting description of Halborg. For the first time, he kneels and prays. First yeah. time in decades. So you know, you really know he's feeling up against it. This is like that scene at the end of Conan. Krom, I have never prayed to you. I have no tongue for it. Okay, so okay, this is a part uh, you wanted me to read here, Chris. This, um, this is where Martek sees Carl Franz. Right. Uh, Carl, panted Martek. Carl Franz, are you still alive? I'm here, Carl Franz replied. I, I had another dream. Tal himself came to me, but, but he was horrific, Carl, covered in the spore of plagues. I see, sighed the emperor. He, he said he was dying. Carl and mortals held the key to deliverance. Only the true sons of Sigmar can save him. Then save him we shall. But, but there's a price. Go on, replied Carl Franz. My liege, Tal, he said that be they prince or be they pauper, those who fight for Altdorf will die in agony. Carl Franz looked out at the sunrise for a moment, his face grim, before gathering his things and waking Deathclaw. Don't care if I got to die saving my place. That's what. Hey, that's his job, and he's doing it. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, the question is, will they make it back in time? Well, <laughs> that would really <laughs> suck if he shows up after it's sacked. Well, at least I'll. You know, right. Well, this sucks, but at least I'm alive. So then, there's an interesting um, exchange between Festus and Kugoth. Another one of their uh, fun conversations here on page eighty-four. The stinking, feculent waters of Aldor's sewers cast strange reflections across the crumbling archway stretching away into the gloom. From a great well-like opening in the slaughterhouse district above, the green eye of Morsleep stared down with a favorite intensity of voyeur at the keyhole. In the algae-slicked atrium far beneath, Dr. Festus muttered as he fussed over a gigantic cauldron heated by driftwood bonfire. Nearby, a great stack of plague cadavers was piled against the central pillar of the atrium each bearing the marks of a slow demise. The soiled victims of a lunatic's dysentery lay piled atop those whose flesh was covered in grave mold, and bodies that had fallen to the gray flux were draped over the corpses with slowly writhing strangle veins under the skin. Fat-bodied leeches writhed in the shallows, latching onto the vermin that got too close and draining them of their vital fluids. Fiddle the fee, shroudlings three, cover the city and pass it to me, sang Festus softly, scooping a trio of demon mites from his cauldron and dumping them into the crackling fire beneath. A thick, stinking column of smoke rose up towards the moon above, adding to the smog that was choking the city. In contrast, Festus felt his own inner flame burning low. He had spent months of long nights planting the seeds of Nurgle's garden across Altdorf. His muscles were burning and his eyelids drooped with the effort of staying awake. The great summoning would require a great deal of mental and physical strength. Though he would never admit it, not even to his leeches, he wasn't sure if he had the gumption left to do it. As Festus' tune dwindled to silence, a distant trickle of liquid filled the atrium. The doctor listened with head cocked. His eyes glazed over for a moment. It sounded more like vomit or curdled gravy than water, but that was still music to what was left of his ears. Such beauty Nurgle had given to the world. When Festus turned back, a large bubble had risen in the middle of the cauldron, growing larger by the second. He gazed in puzzlement as his own reflection rose distorted in the depths, as broad as Morsleep and twice as ugly. Something shimmered within its oiled slick surface, something big. The bubble swelled to fill the giant cauldron before bursting with a loud pop, to reveal a boulder-sized head, slumping shoulders, and a pair of flabby arms each as thick as an ogre's gut. 
Wellspring. Boomed Kugoth, Plague Father, a grin splitting the rotten mound of his face. Or, well met, as we say here in Altdorf, said Festus with a tired smile. For a few more hours, at least. Indeed, nodded the great unclean one, jowls wobbling. In a great many deeds, the garden must grow, and so it has. Our father sneezes great promise inside thee, little doctor. He bethinks thee a change of Kareen. Perhaps green fingers rather than red, hmm? Perhaps the paradise beyond awaits you. I would be honored, said Festus, slow wonder spreading across his ravaged face. And harvest time is close. A seed dwells in the throat of every street corpse I could find. The fat doctor motioned upwards to the thick smog boiling into the city above. You have done well deeds, and so has the bold bumblebeast before thee, belittle me not. Three swordling hordes approach, my friend, are dancing to my tune. The carnivals of life converge from west and east and north, one tattooed, one behorned, and one a plaguey host. The glotkin are close, then? Said Festus, his eyes alight. The timing is critical to the recipe. It has to be tonight, on Geheimensnacht, when the moon is low. The triplets are in sight of the western wolf flowers, dear leechling. The demon boomed. As Lordling Spume completes his march, Damon's spear elopes closer still, the tallyman behind. Fevermore, Epidemius brings a storm of plaguey drizzling. Pregnant clouds all ready to drop their tiny wetlings. All is set, small friend, so please bereft your mind. Festus blew out his cheeks and gave a long exhalation of relief at the news, the tension in his shoulders relaxing for the first time in days. He had invested a great deal in the events of the next few hours. Now these, these lovely flower beds, leered the plague father, gesturing toward the pile of plague bodies with an arm like a giant sausage stuffed with dead pigs. Many Italian might yearn for such sights. Are they second helpings? They are helpers of a sort, yes, though they know it not. The air is thick and the veil between worlds thin. The seeds of misrule are planted and smog fills every street. The time for burning shroudlings is at an end. These are here as more earthly offerings. Yet I fear I have not the strength left to lift them or open the garden's gate alone. No need for pranking heartstrings, Doctor. My minstrel vial I left behind. Laughed Kugoth. We will see fate to thy doorstep, fear thee not. The triplets glot have played their lives well. Blades a plenty march upon this soon fair nest. Grinning indulgently, the plague father hauled his impossible bulk out of the cauldron with a great surge of effort, toppling it and spilling the gruesome brew across the flagstones in the process. Groups? said Kugoth biting a rubbery lip the size of a ripe eel. Pray for glibness, Doctor, or have sprayed your nurgling pot. It matters little. The brew is spent, said Festus, waving away Kugat's frown with a fat-fingered hand. Now, if you really don't mind a bit of earthly toil, he said, trudging over to the pile of plague victims, let's get these juicy fellows onto the fire. So, yeah, as things progress, as they, as they uh, prepare their defenses, the Bane of Altorf arrives, not from within, well, not from without, but from within. So this whole time, Festus's brew, you know, he's, he's creating this uh, concoction that takes the form of a smoke. Right. 
And only those with the strongest of constitutions can even approach within, you know, a mile before doubling over and becoming sick. Yeah, this thing is, this is the nasty right here. So, it, yeah, it's it's the supernatural smoke that forms over the city in the shape of a colossal tree. I thought this was pretty cool how they described this. Yeah, yeah. And these people of the Empire are seeing this, so confusion and concern ripple out at the sight of, this, sight of the clouds. But no one wanted to be the first to break ranks and run. Helbert determined that invasion was the, the bigger threat than the mystical phenomenon taking place before him. Right. Uh, rain begins to fall, and uh, again, it's this putrid, milky white pus yeah. that's falling all over the place. Um, and wherever it's landing, it's just it's the, the, the it's it's helping the Nurgle stuff just just advance and grow better. Yeah. And everyone else is dying from it. Oh, it's, uh, and then there, it, and then it, it it all comes together. Nurgle's plan comes to fruition. It says, and then as Grandfather Nurgle tips his cauldron into reality, the storm broke. When the milk-white rain hit the corpses scattered in the streets, their bodies burst apart with terrible force, twisted flesh trees erupting through them to reach the rooftops in the space of a few heartbeats. Empty streets suddenly thronged with jungle, with foul jungle, with sticky-haired vines. So, this is Nurgle's garden. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Made this manifest. Is, yeah. They have found a way. And so that's what all those things, when they were put, it was like I said, it was like Alien, where those things are going in their mouths and stuff. Yeah. It's planting all these seeds in their bodies to fester and, and germinate. And when the rain hits the seeds, they burst open, they're ripe, and they burst, and, and they're, they're, it grows. Yeah. So it's at this point that the howling masses of the armies waiting outside of Altdorf charge in. Uh, while the smoke starts to whip around like a tornado. Now, this smoke starts to becomes an entity in and of its own as the story progresses. It seems to, yeah. I mean, it becomes this tornado spinning over this center, just calling down all sorts of nonsense. Yeah, so the, the tornado, it starts to spin around, and at this point, it starts to split and tear apart. So is, is a portal forming? I'm not certain what page yeah, you're on. Yeah, uh, so it, it says reality buckles, and it split and tears apart. Uh, demon legions of Nurgle strode forth uh, in their vibrant and revolting glory. Yeah, so there we go. Another portal of Nurgle's just pouring out of it. So, but then, who arrives? The first of the reinf- uh, the allies to arrive, it's the Bretonians. Yes, yes. Nice thing that they're here. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, description. Uh, the Bretonians' grand army... Uh, were rich in tapestries unfurling across the land with... Now, is it Luan Lancor? Yeah, Luan Lancor. Yeah, that's what I always call it. Luan, Luan Lancor's return. Thousands of knights, thousands had answered the call to war, making their way to the Empire. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard, okay, the, the, the Bretonians are all forming these columns, I just knew that they were in for a disastrous end. Uh, did you did you have to get that feeling at all? No. No, you didn't? Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Well, they said anybody who held the fights for Altdorf was going to die, but I didn't think it would be too disastrous. Dude, thousands. I mean, is this, a lot. Is, this is like Lord of the Rings, like, you know, riders of Rohan type stuff. And even they only had hundreds. I mean, thousands of riders. Mm. Are, they, are they looking to out against, or are they fighting on the streets in the Garden of Nurgle? Because that, that wouldn't seem like that would go down too well. <laughs> right. I yeah. suppose it depends on you know how they're going to be used. So as they form up... And they're on their way. The nobles question, the nobles of Bretonia question going to war so soon after Nagash. But uh, 
the nobles, they need to shut up. You know what I like about this? No, where, I don't know what page you're on, but I'm over on 92. What? Oh, you're on 92. Where are you on? I was on 86. Oh, okay, then I'll wait till we get there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, Loan felt that any knight who would look down at his uh, own fortunes while their allies and the empire fell to the ravages of, of war was not worthy of the title. So exactly, Lewin coming through is honorable. So they, they travel for 15 straight days... Knights taking it and turn to sleep in their saddles while they're on on the way. Right. So, yeah, that's crazy. They just don't stop riding. They just sleep in the saddle while they're going. Yeah. Other guys are keeping watch. But how would you know if they were asleep or not? Because with those helms on, you wouldn't. <laughs> well, I suppose you're supposed to stay awake. So I guess they're just taking shifts. And well, if there's, if there's you know hanging limp in the saddle, you're on your honor to be on alert. You knocked off again. <laughs> right, right. Hey, I'm talking to you. Talking that way. What? What? You're awake. <laughs> uh, but despite... I wasn't sleeping. I was resting my eyes. Right, right. Keep talking. I'm listening. <laughs> Keep talking. I'm listening. <laughs> but despite their speed, it appeared that they were not quick enough. Tony Crusaders were con- confronted by a vista chalked by the powers of chaos. To the west, they have thousands of um, Norsecan tribesmen. Um, Pouring along the Reich, even across its mud-covered uh, surface. So once again, yeah. the river just becomes a highway that they used to travel on. Uh, this is where the Glodkin are leading the charge. Armored knights forming their front, canine hunting beasts running before them. And they use tree trunks as rams. Yeah. Oh, when you got minotaurs holding them, I mean... Yeah, absolutely. And they have beastmen to the north, headed by Norsecan cavalry. Dragon ogres and minotaurs in tow, um, and this army headed by a Gutrot Spume, he made his way through the forest atop his grand war shrine, demanding the attention of Papa Nurgle. He demands it. Well, that's right, because after that battle against the 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 forest goblins, the goblins, he like screams up at him, "I did it! Yay! Pay attention to me!" Yeah, look at me, and he and he does because Papa Nurgle loves his children. Meanwhile, the army from the east was the foulest of them all: Orgots, Morbidex, and Bloeb. Barreled out of the forest and smashed through the palisade walls. Sloshing them behind them were thousands of plague bearers, led by the tallyman, Epidemius, each chanting praise to the plague god as they took in the noisome spectacle of the city ahead. So you have all three armies converging. Yep, all at the same time. Meanwhile, the storm inside the city lashes down hard on the battlements, robbing the men of their f- uh, of their fortress walls and the carnage to come. Yeah. So they uh, yeah, they got to fight, but it's Im- impossible for them to stay there on the walls with all this gunk. Right, down. so they're going to march out and yeah, meet them head on. So marching out of the gates, you have regiment after regiment of. Uh, you you wouldn't think like rain, like normal rain, wouldn't worry at all. But this gunk, you just can't stand out there in the open. Well, you've got to do something. I guess. Just, yeah, so it's like, well, we got to go out and meet them. Mm-hmm. No, notes as well. There was a uh, steam tanks plural um, involved here as. Well, indeed, four of them. I think uh, they mentioned, which yep. is protected from the lashing rain by canopies of canvas. Right. So the Reichsmarshal, what he does is he positioned his armies outside each of the gates. Uh, meanwhile, this tornado continues to rise from the city. Yep. And the the energies in the sky form a huge face, uh, while thunder coalesced into fat fingers, which tore open the skies. Yeah. This kind of. Uh, Papa Nurgle made manifest. 
I'm starting to wonder, like, if it's tearing open where he can actually, like, it's tearing right into the warp where he actually can look through and see right. what's going on. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Unclean concoctions spilled forth, nurturing, nurturing the seeds of dis- disorder sown into the streets over the last few months. Uh, the glow of the twi- twin-tailed comet was so bright it rendered uh, every sore and pimple visible to any with the stomach to look. <laughs> so much for my complexion. So, yeah, as Altor stirred into the abyss, the demons advanced. Yeah, the war horns start off, and here the battle's going to start. So you've got Helborg and the Knightly Orders and the Bretonians um, against the Maggot Riders, the Glotkin, Epidemius, Gutrot Spume, the Harbingers there. Oh, look, and the Monstrous Horde. Look, all those spawned that... that uh, What's his face pooped out? That's just. Mm. We should say as well that much like uh, Nagash, this book is also laid out fantastically well with the the imagery, with the way they lay out the armies before each of the battles, and the great artwork. So I think that's they've done a fantastic job once again on the actual presentation of the book. It's it's some of my favorite uh, stuff here. Is this this i these these. Uh, segments and they added in along the side now these like the little banners with all the the lists of how many people are there mm-hmm. I mean and this is crazy I mean you look at this and you're thinking okay it's the last stand in Eldorf you got Helborg you got eight regiments of right guard knights one regiment of knights of the inner circle and two empire knights another regiment of knights of the inner circle and three regiments of empire knights another knights of the inner circle and three regiments of empire knights Another Knights of the Inner Circle, two Empire Knights, and one Demigriff Knights. Two Regiments of Empire Knights, three Demigriff Knights. One Regiment of uh, Halberdiers, 48 Regiments of State Troops, 19 Detachments. Six Regiments of State Troops, three Detachments. Three Regiments of State Troops, two Detachments. 30 Engineers, 14 Artillery Batteries, four Steam Tanks. Uh, the High Paladin, Liu and Leoncor. 53 Lances of Bretonian Knights of the Realm, 32 Lances. 32 lances of knights errant, 13 lances of questing knights, and 12 lances of peg knights. That's epic. I mean, that's fantastic. And then you get the list for the. So you got the Glotkin, you got Orgots, Blob, Morbidex, the Repugnots, one tribe. Oh, well, yeah, one tribe of putrid blight kings. So there's your answer. Uh, 18 tribes of marauders and chaos warriors. Epidemius, 17 Plague Bear Hosts, 13 Beasts of Nurgle, 18 Swarms of Nurglings, 4 Plague Drone Swarms, 1 oh, Gutrot's Fume on his War Shrine, uh, 3 Chaos Chariots, uh, the, the Harbinger, 46 War Herds of Gore and Ungor, 3 Herds of Minotaurs, 35 Chaos Spawns, 6 Chaos Giants, 2 Tribes of Dragon Ogres, 3 Gorgons, 2 Cygors, and a Slaughter Brute. It's quite the party. Yeah, that's you know you list it all out though, and it's like wow, it seems like the empire's got enough guys to take that. Like I, you know, <laughs> maybe. Well, is, is is it enough? So there's an interesting um, description of the opening of the battle of the fall of Altdorf on page ninety two. Yeah. So with sledgehammer force, the cavalry charge hit home. A dozen lance points, then a score, then a hundred thumped into chests and burst out of backs in sprays of stinking blood. 
The Glockin's shield wall splintered and broke like a wooden fence hit by a herd of charging bulls. Shouting at exultation, the Bretonians stormed through the, into the lines beyond. Those whose lances were still intact took new foes in their guts, in their throats, in their backs, and rotten hearts. That's just a great description, a great visual of these Bretonians, you know, hitting home. You know what I like about the Bretonians, too? You know how they always they pray to the lady, and you're always like, oh, yeah, pray to the lady, whatever. The first paragraph on this page... When they're riding in, everybody else is filthy, and that rain doesn't hit them. Did you know this part right here? Though the storm raged fiercely, not a single one of the Bretonian knights had been touched by the foul rain. The whitest droplets simply evaporated with a tiny hiss, a finger's breadth from their armor. Yeah, that's great. So it just burns off. It can't, they, can't, they prayed. They've got the blessing of the lady. This sort of corruption can't touch them. Their honor, their valiant, whatever it is that they're riding in for, this corruption will not touch these guys. I'm like, that's kind of awesome. So they referred to these as chevaliers. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, where are you? Uh, they just talk about, uh, on page 92, two chevaliers, one towards the tribes, the other towards the demons. I guess they're two kind of prongs or Yeah, or that's flanks. what I'm thinking, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that, so that's that's the description of, of one of the attacks. And to the east, they have the same thing, a, a thick wedge of knights driving... Uh, home their charge against Epidemius's horde. Um, the Bretts are cutting down foes by the dozens, switching to swords, but with the sight of their great god among them, the tribal host of, of Nurgle would rather, die in, uh, would rather die in glory than flee. Yeah, well, and, and once again, it's, it's, it's their gods. Is that real? I mean, apparently Nurgle's looking through a hole in the sky at them at this point. Right, so they're not going anywhere. Yeah, this is... This is crazy. Nobody's going to run when he's standing right there. Uh, the tragedy of it all is the the Bretonian charge, as glorious as it is, only penetrated a quarter of the distance necessary to reach Altdorf. Yeah. Well, since Altdorf's coming out to meet them, though, it's like they didn't have to get there and get in. So getting through a quarter of it isn't bad on an initial charge. Yeah, but you got to meet me halfway, man. Hey, they got they got through a quarter. <laughs> Take what you can get, I'm <laughs> <Right>. thinking. <laughs> right. So so it, it's great. It's so the Glodkin considered the Bretonian attack an unexpected complication. Like, oh man, now we got to deal with this. Yeah. So there they go. So, but they knew that defeating the Empire was the key. It was the mortar binding together, like you said before, binding together the men, elves, and dwarves. So they had to take it out. Yeah. Um, and they have yeah the the Girks and Ethrax, the other brothers' reaction to all of this. Girk really knew the scent of flesh. And that meant a feast was to come. Uh, they talk about Ethrak. He delighted in resistance, using the choice of spells to grant the Brett heroes one grisly death, de- death after another. So these knights, despite their prayer protection, are just starting to drop like flies. Yeah. And then you have the, their, their tribes uh, countering and flanking the, the doomed knightly column. And yeah, poor, they can only do so much. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, this is where Helborg, he sees this on all unfolding, and he watches in horror as herd upon herd of praying beastmen emerge from the forest to the north. Yeah. So you have this Bretonian charge stalling to the one side, and then here come this beastmen on the other side. Yep. And he, he goes out to meet them. He emerges, he takes his armies out. Um, but not before Gutrot Spume's vanguard cavalry hit the Imperial lines with dragon ogres not far behind. Right. One up moves, and another army counter moves into that. It's just there's so much going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. He knows there's three armies coming. This one, oh god, look at all that that's coming, and then they start smashing into it. Doesn't even finish it off. There's more, more. 
So that yeah, they have a good description of Minotaurs being cut down by handgunners, but uh, not killing all of them, and the handgunners getting gored. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Hellborg's knightly orders uh, looping around in a wide arc, uh, coming for those at the mouth of a throttle vine tunnel. So he's going to try to cut them off at the pass, right? Yeah. He well, they're all coming through that that tunnel, like you just said. If he can block up the tunnel, if he could bottleneck them there. He knows him and his knights are strong enough to handle them in those numbers. You know what I'm saying? If they've got to come out through that area, he can keep that area locked down. But he's got to get there. So, which he does. He manages, his, his gambit pays off, and he severs the vanguard at that tunnel. So that limits the, uh, the limitless reinforcements that the army has, would have access to. And he buys his men some time. Yep. So it's, it's at this point where there, he, there's that sort of temporary lull where he can actually think but there's an interesting exchange between Halborg and Vlad on page 94 right I love so they're doing all this and he's got his men out there and I love the part where um, Vlad's like Halborg your frontline wavers I can smell their cowardice in the breeze time for a pretty speech methinks and that's when the vampiruses come out and they're standing there, and we're ready. My men are giving their lives out there in defense of the city while you watch skulking in the darkness. You'll not find me on the walls of Altdorf this day. I still have uncomfortable memories of a wooden pike not so far from here. But trust me, living or dead, my puppets will not be idle. So he's ready. He's got this thing. He's like, I'm not going up on that wall again. That's how I got killed the first time. So... Uh, he's got the plan, and it's all sort of together. He's yeah. kind of egging him on, though, because he shows up, and he's like, okay. Um, it's just a matter of time before Helberg's going to have to sort of give in. And go, yes, okay, yeah, well, I need your help. He, know, he knows it's inevitable, and he's just, like you say, almost taunting him with it. Well, the thing, he sent him that thing. You know, He sent him, we'll make a deal, and now he's here to help. He's like, you know, my men are dying out there. What are you going to do? Well, I'm... Depends. What are you going to do? Like, yeah, <laughs> right. you're I, the driver's seat here, Kurt. Exactly. You tell me. I'm here. You said you didn't need me. Now you called, and I'm here. What are you now? What are you going to do? Vlad is playing this really well, tight he's, game. He's immortal. He, he can play the long game. Exactly. He can wait him out. So, meanwhile, you have Festus and Kugoth strolling through this quagmire of what they call New Altdorf. I love that. Yeah. Uh, the city was transforming thanks to the Nurgle apothecaries. Uh, you know, you have all, all this, the, the plants growing uncontrollably, curious tendon, tendrils wandering through broken statues of previous emperors, grave moss and crusty lichen covering everything. Uh, you have, yeah, vegetable, vegetable, fungal, and demonic life forms of all kinds and all sizes. All of them. So really... Nurgle's garden has really come to true form here. Yeah, I mean it's really, it's really formed up and it's and it's growing. It's doing that stuff right now. And it's interesting. Festus has, has reached the point, and I, I guess in the character side of things, would this be Festus ascendant, or he's reached the threshold of immortality? Well, I mean, this is the thing. If he pulls this off, yeah, he he gets to become a demon, which is what he's been hoping for. Mm-hmm. And like Kurgath, it's so fun. Kurgath's like pulling for him. It's like yeah. so often they're always, he's like, oh, he's doing it. He's, hey, good job. You can you, do it. Let yeah. me help you out here. They're like two buddies, right? You know, I, uh, we did skip a little bit uh, with the steam tanks plowing out into the plague bearers. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't forget those steam tanks. Yeah, so the steam tanks ride out, and forcing Epidemius to shuffle his palanquin sideways in order to avoid sharing the fate of his minions. Because they just, I mean, those steam tanks just ride out and just nail the plague bearers. And this is that grind that you used to be able to do. It's just, I just it's just basically driving over them at this point. There's so many. There's, you know, the cannon's not getting the job done necessarily. The steam's not getting the job done. Mm-hmm. Just grind them to pace under your treads. And they almost run over Epidemius. They obviously didn't realize that Epidemius doesn't get a lookout, sir, in that year. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the description of what Ratspawn does to one of them, his Magoth, Bile Spurter, grabs the turret of the nearest tank, rips it off, and vomits a stream of demonic bile into the tank's interior, and it grinds to a halt in a cloud of foul-smelling steam. Oh, yeah, everybody in there just disintegrated. Oh, that poor crew. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, they talk about um, the other steam tank. So, Chris, I don't know if you can read that description of what happens to the other, the other tank. Uh, so starting from the other three steam tanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got the other three steam tanks ground on into the plague bearer host beyond, forcing Epidemius to shuffle his palanquin sideways in order to avoid sharing the fate of his minions, who were crushed into a grey-green paste. The tallyman tutted in irritation and raised a winding finger to the skies. Chanting in a doleful tongue, the herald peeled off a thin cyclone of pus-white cloud that crept slowly downwards, its funnel grounding on the top of the steam tank. The armoured engine wheeled around slowly and span about its centre with gathering speed, eventually toppling onto its side and venting boiling water and scalding steam in all directions. The scolded engineer crew, crying out in agony, attempted to climb clear, but they were quickly hacked apart by the plague bearers milling in close. That's just nasty. Uh, I love how he could just reach. Oh, there's this giant tornado that I didn't build, but he's that powerful. He starts spinning his finger like, okay, I'm pulling some of this tornado down on that thing right there. And yeah, the poor crew. They never had a chance. Span it round and tipped it over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just got him. Like rubbish in this book. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? That's that's the fourth or fifth one to be taken out. Coven Thrones do really good in this book, yeah, though. Right. So. so do uh, Nerglings. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, even with Altdorf uh, succumbing to the, the powers of Nurgle, you do have some holdout, a holdout area in the form of the Temple of Shalya, what they call, a, this, the book describes as a blemish of purity and a landscape of corruption. Um, yeah, so you have battle wizards doing their best to hold back the tide. Gold College uh, wizards turn their fortress into gold, uh, which the plants of Nurgle cannot get a hold of, but then the, the gold eventually decays. Yeah. So what does gold decay into? I don't know. Powder or something? Silver. Silver. Bronze. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Or you have the Light Order who are conjuring a sun of pure energy to banish the demons, but they soon succumb to sniffles, coughs, and sneezing fits. So once again, their humanity is their weakness. Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, every time they're doing well, it's eventually somebody gets sick. Mm-hmm. And they have a description of the Jade Order, the 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 life mages. I don't know if you, David, if you want to. Yeah, they uh, who wield the energies of life found themselves most afflicted of all by the garden spread. Their neat and wondrous arboreal college had sprouted into a grotesque parody of itself, while the wizards of that order were slowly but irresistibly transformed into strange fleshy trees. Damned faces screaming in horror from knots in their trunks and brittle fingers contorted in agony at the end of their twisting branches. So they it's just. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, isn't it? As we were saying earlier, that even though Nurgle is the decay and that, it's still 
very much about life and growing of things, and I think that's probably why it seems to affect the the life wizards more as they're full of that that sort of life energy anyway, and it's just sort of almost warped within them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you have the poor fire mages who are doing their best to burn away everything, but the rain. Yeah, yeah, the, the pus rain is is putting out the fires no Douses matter how much they burn it. It's like they've got an answer for everything, and these guys, it's just everything they've prepared is falling apart. Yeah. So Festus and Kugoth are making their way to this temple to kind of clear away uh, this one semblance of, of purity. Right. So once they arrive, you, you see Imperial regiments fighting off the plague bearers, supported by demigriffs. Uh, you have Bright Order battle wizards that are lighting everything up with walls of flame, yet again being doused by storm clouds. Yep. And yeah, and then Kugoth and uh, Epidemius make their way in. So here you really see the power of a greater demon going to town on these poor Imperial troops. Right. So he, he afflicts a, a bloat spell on some Imperial soldiers and militia. He overturns yet another steam tank with the heave of his fat arms. Yeah, just flips a steam tank right over. Just done. Get out of here. And uh, you have some poor wizards that are using this uh, contraption with lenses and prisms to shoot down... Uh, uh, what do you call those? Is that the Luminarch? Is that drones? like the big... It must be. The, the, must the be. big laser... But he, he conjures a winged of, of sto- a swarm of winged leeches onto these poor guys. Yeah, yuck. So that, yeah, the temple of Shalia remains untainted. Even the sky above it is is clear. So it's a real strong kind of supernatural hold on this area. So Kugoth barrels in, pulping nurses and the wounded. Uh, Festus stood well back and gave a long operatic belch of words in the dark tongue. Black gas billowed from his open mouth, snaking through the air to push into the mouths and nostrils of those sisters desperately trying to escape. And then one stabs him in the stomach, and he just looks at her and then breaks a potion of disassembly in her forehead and breathing in the rich gases of her rapid <laughs> decomposition. So she comes up and stabs him really good, and he looks down, he's got this stab. He just hits her upside the head with a bottle and shatters it on the side of her face, and she starts to decompose. He, he does that a couple times, whips yeah. out a vial and uses it. Did you notice as well he did the, the, the black gas billowing from his open mouth thing again? Yep, vom- that's why I read it, vomiting up a spell. Yep. Um, yeah, and then from above, you have the plague drones dropping wax-sealed death's heads into the throng. Is, is, is death's head considered like a... I don't know what that is exactly, but that's what the book describes it as. Um, no effect on the sacred sisters, but it ate away at the injured state troops attempting to form a battle line. Yep, and I think that's it for this portion. Now we're getting up to the battle. Vlad's about to jump in, so we should take a break here. And when we come back, I think we're going to wrap up the rest of the book. So the battle at the temple. Yeah, we'll be right back. Unique Gifts and Games in Grays Lake, Illinois is the one-stop shop for all your gaming needs. They carry anything your favorite gamer may want. Board games, collectible card games, miniature-based games, and all your hobby gaming supplies are there, as well as books, charms, incense, crystals, and other unique gifts. UGG has it all. Come into the store and ask about their frequent buyers program, 
or check out their gaming and events calendars in-store or online. From Tuesday night War Machine and Thursday Board Game Night to Friday Night Magic, there's always something going on at Unique Gifts and Games in Gray's Lake. Check them out on the web at uniquegg.com. Hey folks, it's Dave, and I wanted to talk to you for a minute about Battle Foam. You've all heard me talk about it before. The foam is firm. It doesn't separate from the base. They custom cut, design, make any piece of foam you want to fit any model you want. Anytime a new army comes out, within days, you've got Battle Foam cut and designed to fit those models. This isn't a game company making cases on the side. This is a carrying case company making foam and custom carrying cases to protect your army. It's what they do. It's all they do. Check it out at BattleFoam.com. Battle Foam, protecting your army. And we are back, and so is Vlad. Yes. Elector Count Vlad. Elector Count Vlad von Karstein. So that's so. I love the two-lister. you got the half-dead army. Emperor Wilhelm I, Vlad brings him up to help him lead his forces. Mm. So one of the most tyrannical figures from the Empire's history comes up to lead his dead armies. The walking wounded... You got a bunch of these, uh, you know, um, the zombie guys coming in. The uh, Leoncor's, uh, you know, his flying knights. And they're fighting the joyful throng. <laughs> Tra-la-la. The joyful throng. So you've got uh, Festus and Kurgoth and all their stuff coming after this temple. Because this temple is like the last, the last holdout place. Seen the um, the soul grinder? They call stem cutter. Yeah. It's she used from it. Is the it's their gardener basically? Right. <laughs> you have to have those giant scissors, you know. Goodness. All right. So the battle's about to begin. Chris, why don't you take this uh, and we'll get rolling with the battle at the plate at the uh, at the temple. temple. Okay. Luan Lancor charges Kugoth and strikes with his lance. Uh, but in doing so, Kugoth grabs the lance and hurls Lancor and his hippogriff into the temple. And I honestly thought that he was dead at this point. I didn't think that uh, he could survive that. So meanwhile, Festus heads into heads towards Kugoth, I think, to help him out. Uh, the and then at this point, Vlad and his undead attack the plague bearers who are busy uh, cutting the array of skin diseases before them. Uh, Putrefex Blister Tongue gives the order. And the second rank of Plague Bearers comes to life, and they start fighting back now, cutting down ranks of zombies uh, wholesale. Uh, with the front preoccupied, Vlad attacks in the flanks with his whites and his graveguard. This is interesting. He cuts his way through a swath all the way through with his graveguard, and then as with his escort, he turns them all as one, locking their shields to form a blockade of armored corpses, thereby kind of cutting off uh, the Plague Bearers kind of in the middle of their, of their line. Which I thought was an interesting visual. Uh, meanwhile, you have Kugoth closing uh, for the kill at the temple, going for the white-robed priestesses. And these poor priestesses are just getting beat up all over the place. Um, Lancor throws the priestess out of the way, the head priestess, just as Kugoth's blows, blow falls. Uh, and he's got a glowing sword in his hand. But is it enough? 
he leaps up, opening uh, Kugos' lance wound to further reveal the greater demon's riding heart. Yeah, it's interesting at this point, um, Lewin, is, he's wounded, but instead of trickling blood, he's, he's trickling golden liquid. And uh, do they say, is it is it the Lady of the Lake that is his deity? Yeah. Yeah, I think you you find out in Cain that that's, that's one of the elf goddesses as well, isn't it, I think? Oh, I see. I think it's funny how basically the worse Nurgle gets, the, the worse the corruption gets, mm-hmm. these guys are pure and their purity levels are like rising to meet the challenge. Right. You know, it's like we've prayed... We are pure, and they are going to counter, you know, point for point. <laughs> as gross as Nurgle gets, their purity levels just like sort of increase to to to, to counter it because that's mm-hmm. what it's got to do. If you've got that blessing, I like that. So they have a description of um, blister tongue locked in combat with Emperor Wilhelm. So they they fight it out, um, but not before Wilhelm slashes blister tongue, vanquishing him. Meanwhile, uh, Lancor is con- he's continuing to fight with Kugoth. Liquid light drizzling from his close cropped beard. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, plus he threw him into the temple, so he probably got some more blessing there. I do like how Festus is smiling and approving. Ah, we can't. They can't touch the temple. Like it's too pure. Yeah. Well, if you throw that guy into the temple, nice job. He's smashing it up a bit. Right. Right. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. Take it down other ways. Yeah. So at this point, the the unnatural stamina of the the demons has matched the unceasing energies of the walking dead. However, the demons start hacking down undead faster than Vlad can raise them. Uh-oh. Uh, however, Electric Count Vlad had problems of his own. A tide of giggling nerglings had poured between the legs of their larger brethren to crawl and climb up the vampire's legs, boiling over each other in their haste to reach the weak spots of his eyes and throat. Vlad snarled as he slashed out at the demon mites with his sword blood drinker, some part of him silently grateful that the creatures had no true bloodstreams to trigger the exsanguinatory magics of his blade. Yet much like the plague bearers filling the streets, there seemed no end to the number of nerglings assailing him. By piling atop one another, they were coming closer and closer to his unarmored neck. Yeah. So Vlad really feeling it. The nerglings once again. <laughs> it's the power choice. Yeah, first the team tank, now Vlad. It's yeah. Going for it. Yeah, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually Vlad dispatches the nerglings. I think through the through a spell. I think he just makes them uh, <laughs> pop into smoke. Yeah, he sort of burns them all away. Ignited his anger with a gaze that would have burned with black fire. Two beams of dark magic raged out from his eyes. He got the laser beam eyes. Lasers. He's in a gash. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, he remains victorious against the Nurglings, but then Stemcutter enters the fray. Yeah, the piston-driven strength flinging the vampire across the square. So he gets knocked all silly from this thing. Yeah, and at this point, they kind of really chop and change from battle to battle. Yeah, it's, yeah. there's three or four different major fights going on in front of this temple. Right, so they switch back to Kugoth versus Lancor. Uh, Leon's golden blood searing Kugoth, dripping its way into the gaping wound in the demon's chest. Sacred life blood that, before, that bore the blessing of a goddess more powerful than Shalia, Kugoth bubbled away into nothingness. So that, that was a pretty cool visual. You know... It, special character as iconic as Kugoth kind of being melted away. And he bleeds into him to kill him. It's like, I can't beat you yeah. fighting, fighting. 
but the purity, you, he can't handle that purity. So it's like the blood that he drew, the, the damage he was doing is what actually came back mm-hmm. to take him out and vanquish him back to Nurgle's realm. Now here's where Festus's uh, not being act- an actual demon it comes into play. So, right. so Festus being glutted with the power of Nurgle smashes a vial into Leon's face, blinding him. The leech lord pounced like a toad, using a, separ- a serrated blade to cut his throat. The golden blood burned, but didn't have the same effect on Festus, for he was still a creature of the more material realm. Festus grabbed the knight's ravaged head by the hair and wrenched it from his body in a spray of golden gore. Now he's dead. Is he dead? He just <laughs> pulled his head off. <laughs> that was a, that's a pretty graphic death, isn't it? Slowly sawed off. Yeah. Not nice at all. With the with the golden blood spurting. Yeah, cuts his throat and then just get, once he gets through the muscles and tendons, just rips the whole skull mm-hmm. off. So Festus was lit from within uh, with a green white light that poured out of his eyes and mouth. All the demons began chanting his name. So he's just about there. Yep. Uh, and then Vlad hits him from the side, body slams him basically, and uh, pulls the blade out. But before he can do that. Uh, Festus blasts him into ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, an empty suit of Sylvanian armor clatters to the cobbles, and a large jeweled ring rolling away to settle under a mass of broken wood. And this is great because first I went, ah, but then they mentioned the ring. I was like, oh, yeah. Dude, the ring saves him a whole bunch of times in this one battle. It, it becomes pivotal, yeah. And that's an actual magic item that he comes with, correct? Yeah. It used to work better for him now. It's still, but well, it's still good. In this book, it's it's certainly worked out for oh, him. Yeah. So yeah, with <laughs> with Vlad in that state, the undead begin to fall. Meanwhile, the Shalian pri- priestesses who had prepared their defenses, you know, they they were they've been bought a little bit of time, used uh, blessed water to uh, place that around their perimeter, something that the demons could not cross. And uh, yeah, Vlad reemerges from the mass of uh, broken tables. And this is an interesting exchange here. Yeah, the uh, ring on his hand is all glowing. Yeah. And he's looking around, and Festus catch, catches his blade in his hand when he goes after him. But the wooden stake in his other hand, because he's, I guess when he went under the tables, he burst through and he's grabbed a piece of the wood. That was his plan. Yep. There's a slight, um, it's, it's quite ironic, isn't it? The vampire staking someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> his intuitive gamble proved quickly proved correct. Filled to the brim with the burgeoning energies of unbridled life, Festus's body turned the inert wood of the stake into a wild and twisted tree in the space of a single surreal second. Impaled bodily on a majestic dracwald oak that suddenly sank its great roots into the flagstones and swelled up and up into the skies, the leech lord's chest was slowly pulled wider and wider until he simply burst in a cloud of gray-green ectoplasm. A wail of frustration echoed around the square as the strange mist was caught up by the tempest raging above and whipped away into the realm of chaos. So did he make it? Because if he was still human, he wouldn't have turned into ectoplasm. That's what demons turn into. Did he Did he reach demonhood? Oh, that's a good question. I took it to mean that no, but, and he was... I heard the aggravated scream, but if it gets sucked back in... I mean, that's when you, when you vanquish demons, they go back right. to the realm of the demons. I thought he made it here. Like, I thought he made it... And now he's been, but I mean, you get vanquished. It takes you a while to come back. Like, right, I don't expect right. him to come back as quickly as Vlad has. But I thought that's what all that light was. He was infused with all this power of Nurgle, mm-hmm. about to make it as a demon. And I don't know. What do you think, Chris? 
Um, I didn't think that. I mean, that's David makes a, quite a compelling argument. I think. Uh, I think we, like when you see him with the the light and that, that's when he's Festus empowered and he's not a demon in those rules. That's what I thought that sort of um, sort of showed. But yeah, I mean, re- just reading through it again, there it sounds like whipped away into the realm of chaos. Yeah, it could could well have been. We might we might see him again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems odd to write him new rules and then kill him straight away, regardless. <laughs> you made it, but no, you're dead. So, meanwhile, you have Gutrot Spume's war shrine being toppled over by a one Hans Zintler, Reich's captain of the Empire. And you know what? This guy is going to go down in the, the annals of history of imperial heroic deeds, right? Right. <laughs> so, he he's successful in stabbing Spume, but uh, Spume grabs the sword... And rams it through this guy, poor guy's own neck. Well, oh, yeah, that's you know that's what happens. Yeah, beastmen begin pouring up the wall to the east. Epidemius is busy uh, counting the deadly infections spreading throughout. A lot of tallying that has to go on here. Um, this interesting passage where Orgot Demon Spew and his Magath riders charge the Imperial gun battery. The ninefold boom of a misfiring hell blaster rang out, and man and demon alike were torn to shreds as a hail of cannonballs blasted a gory path through the battle. Epidemius looked down at the hole that cored his torso like a rotten apple, counting the infections that spilled out with a detached interest. Slowly, his quill scrabbled to a halt, and the demon herald faded from the mortal realm like a bad dream. So there goes Epidemius, taken out by random explosion. Oh, good. Good, two cannons to kill anything. So yeah, so yeah. At this point, with the, the plague bearers robbed of their vigor, you know, the, does the battle start to turn? Uh, but Demon Spew has other allies, so this is where you have the the brass bull kind of lumbering forth again. I like this part. Yeah, this part's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's ricochet. The fire pistol fires ricocheting off his metal skin. Um, he's suddenly there, slamming through everything, just smashing stuff up. Threw back his head, throwing back his head, bellowing praise to the blood god. These guys, you gotta love the minotaurs. They're just they, they're, they're going just, to town. Yeah, yeah. The brazen doom bull roared with a war cry to the gods above. It was too much for the Altdorfer soldiers. They broke and ran. These poor Altdorf soldiers, man, they're just being put through the ringer. And I love this though. Speaking of which. That bronze-skinned minotaur, as he cast about for his next kill, a thick, black-fletched arrow suddenly struck, quivering from the tiny patch of brown skin on his throat. A thin line of amber light could be traced back from the deadly shaft to the topmost point of the east gate tower, where the hunts marshal stood proud against the skyline. The bronze beast gave a gurgling shout, its eyes rolling in metal sockets, and toppled over dead. So the hunt marshal got his shot off. He got the six and six. He got, he got the, the six, six, six by six, man. One and thirty-six. He did it. Amazing. So, at meanwhile, at the West Gate, the Blodkin barreled through the, the undead as if they were insects. And this is where uh, our favorite guy, my favorite guy, Munvard, you know, he's uh, back into the fray. Yep. A cadre of handgunners leaned to the West Gate's upper towers and ready to point-blank volley. Otto raised a dangling length of intestine and clenched his guts, spraying the marksman with hissing yellow bile. So he pulls out his own intestines <laughs> and squeezes them like a super soaker. Like Windex. Yeah, and sprays them with his intestinal fluids. Gross. 
They screamed, clutching at their smoking faces and clawing their eyes. Riding his brother's heavy mass on the upswing, Otto hooked the size tip around the shoulder plate of one of the unwounded gunners and yanked him over the wall, catching him by the scruff of his neck as he fell. The warlord shook his captive hard, demanding the soldier tell him the whereabouts of his lord. He simply stretched out a quaking arm, gesturing the rough towards the Imperial Palace. Otto thanked him earnestly, then dashed his brains out against the tower wall. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's lovely. But we haven't even gotten to Munvard yet, have we? Uh, no, he's flying overhead on his bat-winged uh, terrorgeist, looking for revenge on the, those who have destroyed Altdorf. Yes. Uh, you have an interesting exchange. The Swidak Beast, that's the that's the terrorgeist's name, swoops in and... Uh, yeah, it starts screaming at Gurk. Oh, and he shoots twin streams of dark light from his eyes, too. That must be a vampire thing that I don't know about. Munvard? Munvard. Tw- twin streams of dark light from his eyes. The dark energy struck Ethrek with a sizzling force. Yeah, so Munvard, he, he creates this mound of undead to bury the triplets, but they kind of explode it off. Uh-huh. And there's just bodies all over the place here. Yeah. Um, you have the terror guys pulling Gurk through the melee. Yeah, this is one of those scenes like where you always see the good guy where like 20 soldiers jump him and you see this, the, the camera angles right from right above him so all you see is the yeah. buried body. All of a sudden there's like boom! He stands up. What else do you got? Right. Uh, uh, and then we have the arrival of your favorite uh, device, David, the Coven Throne. Of course, because it's so cool. It, it's awesome in every way except on the table. Beams of dark energy burn into Otto's head from above, so they're trying to burn through his skull. Is that one of the spells on that thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Otto hurls aside to kill one of the vamps on the throne, and uh, the throne retreats. I guess it fails its panic check and uh, takes off. It's undead. They don't take panic checks. Well, why did it leave? I don't know. It's the chicks. He's gross. He smells bad. I suppose so. Yeah. So, pretty females. The, yeah, the scythe, and then... Yeah. So, yeah, that it, it takes off. And then Munvard, he's pretty upset by this. And this is great. So, a magical duel begins between Munvard and uh, Etheric. Uh, so, yeah, they kind of exchange spells back and forth. Uh yeah, the vampire begins an ancient chant to destroy the Glotkin once and for all. Ethrek shook his head and wagged a filthy finger at the vampire before dipping a gnarled hand into the pouch at his side and throwing a handful of black spores onto the brazier, smoldering slowly just as it jutted or slowly as it jutted from Gurk's broad back. And then the smoke basically gets toward him just as he's about to complete his spell, but doesn't complete it yet. Mm-hmm. The smoke <laughs> The smoke encircles him and covers him up, and then when it's gone, there's just a skeleton. As Gurk barrels pass, Ethric backhands Mudvard's cadaver, and it collapses. <laughs> the moldering bones <laughs> clattering under the streets below. Yeah, he bit slaps <laughs> yeah. him like backhands the bones. This poor Mudvard. <laughs> oh my god! So with, yeah, with poor Mudvard dead, Gurk smashes the terrorgeist. He kind of grabs it and smashes it into a statue and then into a playhouse and then into the flagstones. Which so, is kind of... Uh, on uh, Loki and um, Avengers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Puny god. So then Vlad's waiting. And so we get Eltdorf's last hope. This is really cool. Um, did we want to take a little break here? Or did we, you know, and finish off these last, yeah, like, four sure. pages? Let's take a, take a break. Okay. 
Vlad watched Reich's Marshal Helborg bristle, the knight's ridiculous mustache quivering with unseemly emotion. Stay in the shadows, then, as befits your kind, said Helborg acidly. Behind him, Vlad sighed. Humans were so impatient. I shall, said Vlad. It suits my lady's complexions better. He scraped his cheek with a dagger, an echo of mortal grooming he had never quite lost. So be it, spat Helborg. Though their presence here is still mystery to me, I struck a deal with you alone, because you are part of this realm, whether I like it or not. Not with these other... lineages. I certainly did not expect a freakish thing like that at my gates, he gestured at Munbard's giant pet. It matters not what you expected, replied Vlad. My master Nagash would rather the land of mortals remain pliable. What good is corporeal power if the material world is replaced by pure chaos? The vampire opened his hand wide, a slight smile revealing his fangs as he continued. We are here to deny the dark gods their ultimate prize, Helborg. By the look of what has become of your city, it is a battle you are ill-equipped to fight. Helborg spun on his heel to face Blood down, his face red. He looked ready to fight. If you take issue with my master's plan, said Vlad, you could follow Volkmar's tracks into Sylvania and explain your reservations. Enough of this, muttered Helborg, drawing his blade and pointing it at Vlad. He took a deep breath. By the authority vested in me as the steward of Karl Franz's realm and the rune fang I hold, I hereby declare you, Vlad von Karstein of Sylvania, an elector count in extremis, announced Helborg. Vlad grinned modestly, but his mind filled with an unholy joy. Behind Helborg, Altdorf troops shared disbelieving glances. From this day forth in the realm of Sylvania is a new province under your rightful command, continued Helborg. And now, as an elector count of the Empire, it is time for you to do your part. Your forces do not fear the plague. Kindly put them to business of taking back the streets. I have men enough to hold the walls. Vlad drew his sword and made an elaborate salute, turning to stride through the north gate. The dead filed into the streets behind him. He could hear the words of his new pawn resounding in the air. Men of the Empire! The Reich's Marshal bellowed, turning and raising his arm to address the army stretching in front of the gate. Today is the day that started in ill omen, but by Sigmar it shall end in glory. Put aside your doubts as I have, and think only of victory. In the name of the Griffin Emperors, and of the Helden Hammer, and of Altdorf itself, advance! And we're back for the final conflicts in Glotkin, Gods and Monsters. The exciting conclusion. So I like how Altdorf's last hope is listed as Carl, Gregor Martek, and Vlad. And then they're fighting the Glotkin empowered, the chosen few, the clotted, the knights in Tropic. Oh boy, here we go. This is exciting. Let's go. Yeah, so there's an interesting exchange uh, with Vlad. So, yeah, um, they're looking at them, uh, you know, talking about she was dead and all this stuff. And, and uh, the Otto's sitting there going, wait a minute. She, and Vlad, Vlad looks out, I was dead too many times over. Come to that. So are you, whoever you are. And so he comes in and Otto jumps back and he looks at him, you're fighting a duel with a scythe? Really? Really, said Otto. Jabbing forward with the blunt tip of his weapon in the hope of catching Vlad off balance. It didn't work. The vampire leapt straight upward, 
put an armored boot on the flat of the scythe and came down hard, snapping the blade tip and trapping its curve against the ground. So then they start brawling. Um, yeah, and then there was a dull crack and two feet of ruddy steel burst from Otto's chest. And Otto's like, that was good. And then, uh, no fangs, huh? You're very civilized. Thank you, my fat friend, said Vlad. And then this is the part. It, Vlad's sword is blood drinker. That's why he doesn't, like, he heals. He drinks blood and heals through his sword. Right. So he stabs Otto, and Otto's full of, his blood is full of this. Poison. And- yeah, it's poisonous. So uh, the red blade slid out of his chest, and Vlad's hands fly to his throat, eyes bulging. He gags, wretched, and vomited a great fountain of stinking, clotted gore on the roof. You know, so even his vampire abilities can't cleanse. Yeah, the filth. So yeah, so then they they keep fighting. My name's Otto Glott, by the way, going after him, and then uh, again, uh, the uh, what happened? A split second before the impact, the ruby ring on Vlad's sword flashed, and when Otto's sight cut through, nothing more than a cloud of bats. So that's it. so again, Vlad is. Saved. He's still alive. Oh. Yeah, that, that page one twenty is probably my favourite single page in the book. I think we really Otto is really his own character within that page, mm-hmm. aside of being the Glockkin, and uh, that that exchange and holding his own against Vlad shows us that he's not just another sort of random chaos warlord. He, he's 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 pretty hardcore. Yeah, uh, and it, I just like the the humor within it within it all there like the exchanges that they're making as 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 they battle it's it's great it's such a great read that page really really liked it yeah at the end he leaves when vlad vlad turns into basketball no staying power the dead right just like yeah total disregard <laughs> that there he i could just imagine himself dusting himself off yeah, yeah no staying power is another good bit is after um vlad snaps his scythe said you broke my scythe corpse fondler said otto yeah. ruefully she was no fancy drinking sword, true, but very useful and easy on the eye. We Norskans like a few curves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just really... fondler. <laughs> so the, the whole the whole idea is that when the um when the Coven throne came in, Otto killed one of the the witches off, um sorry, not witches, killed one of the vampires off the back of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why Vlad's obviously annoyed with him because he said um, the Lamian was no Isabella true, but useful enough. So he's obviously come back in for a bit of revenge there. Absolutely. So it's it's during this exchange, or right before this, is when Karl Franz has arrived at Altdorf to see all this unfolding. Yeah. So he then enters the fray. Uh, so, yeah, with Vlad's attack, he had bought some time. So Karl Franz and his griffin spring to attack, but are smacked down by, by Gurk. Yeah. Uh, you have Martek's two-headed griffin raking out Girk's eyes while undead Altdorfers are still continuing to slash away at Girk. Karl Franz must really wonder what the hell he's come back to. Yeah, I mean, you've been gone all this time and you see your city and you knew it was being attacked by Nurgle, but it's turned into Nurgle's garden. You've got dead, dead, dead men fighting alongside you. Yeah, like, what's going on here? Well, they were also fighting alongside him back at the Auric Bastion, though. So, I mean, he kind of was, like, I mean, he didn't strike a deal with Vlad, even though Vlad tried to talk to him. But, I mean, I think that that would not be as odd as just how transformed everything is at this point. 
New Altorf. <laughs> yeah, New Altorf is right. Yeah. So yeah, you have uh, Ethrak engaging in the, you know, trying to cast some spells. So he, he casts what sounds like Amber Spear at Ethrak. So it's it's great. The warlord shrugged, having been hit by the Amber Spear, picking up a piece of burnt flesh from his belly and popping it into his mouth. It's like a potato <laughs> chip. Yeah, just yuck. Ethrak uh, then conjures tentacles from the the, the temple that uh, that Martak is perched on with his griffin and grabs the two headed griffin. Uh, he tries to dispel it, but he can't because he's fighting against the timeless, boundless power of Nurgle's garden. And it's it's at this point that Martak's griffin is pulled apart like a chicken. Right. Yeah, I mean, literally, it's just flesh open in a dozen places as magical stresses wrenched at him before he realized the struggle was futile. He might as well have tried to swallow the world. Poor Griffin. Meanwhile, Girk is locked in a lethal embrace with Carl Franz and his Griffin, Deathclaw. Yeah, the, 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 his two-headed Griffin gets um, Afrak grinned horribly as the beast was pulled apart in a shower of trailing organs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Carl Franz, he's fighting with Girk and his with his rune fang. But Girk grabs it and slams it into a a pus choked fountain. So yeah, Carl Franz is is starting to get uh, beat up a little bit. Um, Girk and Otto uh, charge the Emperor, and uh, this was pretty shocking. They sever the Emperor's arm at this point, right? Yeah, his arm pulsing blood and still clutching the hilt of Runefang tumbles to the ground. to Volton. Uh, in the last book, Volted, who doesn't make an appearance whatsoever in this book, interestingly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he's just back on the fighting with his rune fang at the moment. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, you have Gregor Martok stumbling through the vines so in his weakened state. So he's he survived that attack of his griffin being torn up right? Uh, with uh, the beastmen on his trail. They've picked up the scent of his blood, but he's too weak to cast any spells. So he... Uh, Miraculously stumbles his way into the Imperial Menagerie. I love this. As soon as and he's the beast, you know, the Beastmaster finds the Menagerie. I love this part. Yeah, I really like this. <laughs> so yeah, so he, he, yeah. he makes his way, uh, and he kind of draws in the Beastmen who are coming in for the final kill. And there's all these animals, you know, in this zoo, basically. Right, and he's hiding off in a corner, and they think they think he's just hiding. Right. But even he's got a plan. The Harbinger takes more of those drops of that stuff that lets him speak. So right when they're upon him and about to take his life, they're all, like, sent up in, you know, a ball of flame via dragon that's been sitting right there. Yeah, well, he's laying off in the corner, and they're all just standing there like, okay, we're ready to kill you. They're all well, I, gathered when, around. When I read that, though, I wonder if you have access to all these monsters in here, why not let them loose during the, the, this battle? They only have one dragon, don't they? They've, it's the Imperial Dragon. I don't know why that was locked up. Why they didn't? Because Carl Franz can ride that as well. So I don't know why he's not on that instead right. of Griff. <laughs> well, he just got back too. I mean, I suppose he should go get it. But the I, I I was assuming they didn't let stuff go only because without riders like to control them. They just, don't. I don't think they have like. It's not like the elves where they have an affinity to their their mounts. I don't think. It's, I suppose. I mean, if they are keeping it locked up inside the. But I'm saying the they're zoo. dangerous. You just let them go run rampage. Yes, it could mess up Nurgle, but it could also just start attacking. But here, <laughs> it, it torched a whole bunch of beastmen. Well, that's well. He's a beast wizard, and here he is near the dragon. He crawls yeah, over there, and he's hiding, waiting, 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 and then they all show up, and he and he flames them. I suppose because that's what I that's what I assumed that was because then he looks over to me he's like oh thanks buddy or something like that I forget what he says to yeah. him 
But at, at this point, Martek, he passes away. I think that was his final act before he succumbed to his wounds. I think so. I think we actually jumped ahead. I think he gets a menagerie and that something else happens. Yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, while this is happening, Franz is, you know, he's had his arm cut off and he's still fighting on. But that's when Helborg arrives. Yeah. What does he what does he manage to do? He goes in there and he Well he actually does quite a bit. He he blocks uh Glot's side from hitting Franz, uh, but then he's he's hit by Otto, sending him stumbling. Uh he grabs onto Otto's blade as it lunges towards Franz's throat, saving him yet again. Uh but Otto rips his uh sword free and uh cuts he, he severs several of Helberg's fingers. Oh that's right. I think does he he kills him at this point as well, doesn't he? Did die, uh, yeah. Helbrook died. Yeah. Oh. Which I was shocked to read about that. He's he's been such an iconic character and built him up for it quite a lot. It was I don't think David was on when we were talking about um Schwarzhelmer earlier, was he? And, and the fact that he was missing. His lack of it, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean I mentioned he was missing, but that's I wonder where he is. Because it's almost like it should be him that should be the one step. Because that's his rules in game, isn't it? That he he takes wounds instead of the the emperor. Yeah. So it's almost like he should be the one stepping in. I don't. I don't. I'm slightly confused by the lack of his presence. But yeah, I think Helborg was made to be quite a large character in this book, actually. So that was quite a big death, I thought, at that and, point. And he gets it's it gets stabbed right through the eye and out the back of his skull. Yeah. He he stutters out a plea for forgiveness in the name of Sigmar before his corpse slid from the rusted blade onto the floor. I was like, "Oh no!" Uh, you know, and he asks for forgiveness. Like, I, you know, I, I I failed. I didn't get the job done. That warrior spirit. Like, yeah. you look at all you did. You just saved the. Your last move was to save the emperor again, and it's still just he's a well written character. You know, despite yeah. the, the grisly death. Yeah. So, so you have Gurk and Otto looming over the over Franz now. With Deathclaw pinned in, in some nearby rubble, and Otto strikes Franz, severing his other arm, cutting th- into his heart. And thunder and lightning is going overhead. All this stuff is happening. Plunged in the Emperor's heart, the world seemed to freeze in fear for a brief second. Uh, Carl Franz sank to the flagstones with the Glotkin triumph. I remember reading this. I went, "Wait, what? Like, wait, you saved him just to do this?" I was like, "Dang." It's like Otto's just beaten Vlad in a duel, and now he's just killed Carl Exactly. Yeah, I was right. like, bam! Like, who, who needs Archeon, you know? like This guy's hardcore. With his last breath, the Emperor called out the name of his warrior god, and the world was changed forever. So I like this as he's dying. He calls out to Sigmar for help. It's just, this is so cinematic. I really am liking this part. And it says, I mean, he got the, you're, anyone who tries, didn't remember that was the dream? That he got from the yep. anyone who tries to save him is going to die. Helborg just died. Um, well, he's sitting over there by the menagerie, and then I guess I mean I guess Carl Franz dies here. He screams out his name, and then the skies ripped open to reveal a celestial otherworld. A twin-tailed sphere of pure force energy slammed out from a hole in the sky, and blasted into Carl Franz's corpse. So yeah, he is dead. Yeah, hurling them through the air. And then uh, something coalesced at the heart of the grounded comet. A figure, golden and tall, Emperor Carl Franz, burst unharmed from the fires. A hammer made of pure golden light blazing in his hands. So he's got his hammer back. 
Yeah, it's like, um, is it, they call it in the rules, it's called the essence of Galmaraz. Oh, okay. It's, it's not, I don't know, I don't know if it's meant to be a physical, physical hammer or not. It does refer to there as a hammer made of pure golden light, so I don't know if it is a physical hammer or yeah, just as a yeah. magic weapon, as it were, I suppose. Luminous and terrible, the warrior crackled with raw etheric powers as he charged straight at the triplets. Eh. Now they're screwed. <laughs> yeah, they're on the back foot now. But he doesn't kill them, though, does it? I think he severely wounds them. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I mean, what happens to him there, I think it links in with something that happens in Kane uh, at this time when Carl Franz sort of gets saved. But we can touch on that uh, next time, hopefully. Interesting. Right, but nice I love teaser. that Girk comes at him with the pseudopod arm, the big fat arm, and he just grabs it and pulls him in close. It's right. like Girk comes in to smash him, he grabs the arm and pulls Girk. It's like, oh boy. Once that happens, you got to know there's there's some power going on here. Yeah. So he goes into town on them with his hammer. Uh, hitting both Girk and Otto, and Ethric. Yeah, I think he hits all three of them. Well, first he does an uppercut and runs right through Girk's guts and basically splits him open. So his ribs are, you know, just falls on his back, all opened up. Otto comes down. Uh, he blasts the warlord with a. He just puts his hand out and shoots him with lightning from his hands. And uh, that goes there, and then. Uh, he slams the wall, gravel steaming beneath his feet. The godly warrior strode over to Ethrak as the sorcerer gabbled in panic. His golden hammer rose high, and his spell finished with a shout, and all three of the triplets turned into swarms of fat flies. The hammer fell, and the swarm spiraled to the ether. A foul smell left in their wake, high above the clouds parted, to reveal a cold but pure winter dawn. So, yeah, so basically he was about to smash them, and, the, and, the, and Ethrak saved them all. Turning into flies. There's a lot of turning into flies or mists or bats and escaping. It's got Efrak's got a spell for every occasion. Right, right. <laughs> well, so he's panicked and he's doing it fast. But he's, I mean, damn, he's good. Yeah. I'm surprised he's not a level five wizard with the stuff he knows. I mean, he's just throwing out stuff left and right. Timing is everything. This picture is fantastic, though. Which one is that? On page one twenty six. Of him after the twin yeah. tail, because you can see there on the top right, on the top left, you've got the her the the tornado going. You can see the mouths behind it. Looks like the great unclean ones, the Nurgle stuff, sort of tearing through, and then the twin tailed comet coming in from the top right, smashing down. And there's Carl Franz just standing there. I'm ready to go. Yeah. So the the last page one twenty seven is an interesting uh, description. It goes back to. Um, you know, the land is kind of healing itself, and the the powers of Nurgle are receding. Uh, you know, all the poisoned waters are becoming crystal clear again. Uh, I think there's, like, descriptions of rain and sunlight kind of washing away the infection of Nurgle. Yeah. Then it goes on to talk about the geomantic power of the three gods, Shalia, the Lady, and Ulrich. That's who I take it to be. Am I, am I right? I thought it was, yeah. Um managing to drive the corruption from the nature god's body, Tall. So the land is healing, and the, the god is healing. Yeah, in the beginning it looks like it's healing, and then suddenly it comes back. And then, like, she gets covered in this same thing. Her hair turns white. There's uh, The bits of her hair break away and turn into mist. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's nasty. Then the lady leans in. Uh, she looks at that, and... Uh, she too knelt down next to the stricken god and placed her hands on Tal's chest. 
Gradually, the spots on Shalia's arm faded, and her hair returns under the hands of the white glowed out. Mingling energies channeled the lady's eyes. Tal's mighty chest heave, his eyes opening wide. After glowing, another glowing figure stepped in, a giant of a man with a wolfskin helm and a long white beard. Looking at the stars for a long moment, the weather-beaten giant placed his gnarled hands on his fallen friend's chest. Winter had finally come, and with it, a chance for rebirth. So, yeah, so they save him, but it's like it looked like it was going to completely overpower them mm-hmm. at that There's point. The, it's an interesting bit at the top of that passage where it talks about uh, the shining figure of the lady lent in. Um, her lips, uh, personal thought. She looked to the shining golden paladin by her side for a moment, inspired by her faithful warrior's sacrifice. So, um, Scott was saying to me that he thought that had indicated that, um, Lou and Leonco had sort of ascended to godhood. Cause I mean, that's clearly who he's referencing, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I don't, don't think I take quite that much from it. I, I, I didn't take it as ascending to godhood, maybe just sort of an angel, so to speak, in, yeah, that's, in her army. That's what I took it. Like, he was sort of off in heaven now. Like, he died, but he was there with the lady, which would be probably the best reward for any any servant of Bretonia to be there next to the lady. So the lands are, are healing, the gods are healing. There's an interesting passage here about uh, that refers to the three ceramic jars. Yeah, yeah, so uh, three newly shaped ceramic jars rattled and clinked amongst the dust, a faint buzzing susurrus coming from within. Two were more or less man-sized, but the third was a massive round urn that could have held a boulder the size of a house. So is this them being stored for later use or kind of... Or maybe saved up? You know, I mean, they yeah. did a good job. You were talking, they're, they're glocking, aren't we? Yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because that's, I mean, that is, that's that's back in Nurgle's garden, right? Yes, deep right, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, they, they yeah, they've been sort of saved. And plus, they smashed three of his jars. Yeah, so you got to restock. Because didn't, didn't Kurgath sort of, he, didn't he say something in the beginning about how he took them out of father's attic, grandfather's attic? So he kind of snuck these jars out, and they smashed them, <laughs> they used them, so... So they have to replenish them. No, there's three. Oh. Well, it leaves, it leaves it open-ended to do whatever they want with them now, I suppose. Right. They're kind of in hibernation to, yeah, to come back. They can come back, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, but now, also, as soon as he comes back, everyone starts to realize, like, the guys who have survived are like, uh-oh, the demons are starting to disappear. The guys who aren't demons are learning. Uh, all the the the... The white, like a white fire, runs along the rivers, burning off all the Nurgle stuff, turning it all back and purifying it in fire. Um, but however, you guys, this was no time for jollity or celebration. Roughly half the population of the Empire had died in the last few months, and Bretonia had expended much of its strength in their defense. Worse still was news that the Emperor's Nordlander scrollbearers had delivered to him earlier that day. An armada of wolf ships had made had been sighted in the Sea of Claws, more numerous than any that had been seen before. And that's a lot. Yeah. Every one of them bore the symbol of the three-eyed king upon its sails. Carl Franz crunched the parchment scroll in his fist. Archeon was coming. Yeah. So this is, as epic as this battle was, it was just a prelude to the, the coming battle. Now you got to remind yourself, this is the Vanguard army. Yeah. The Vanguard army wiped out half of the Empire. Now, hopefully, some elves and some dwarves will start showing up and help them out or something. Yeah, really. Dang. 
And then you get the last part where you know you've got uh, he's talking to our Arkan's talking to uh, what's his name? Um, yeah, Kairos Fate Weaver. Yeah, it'll take more than a princing of the south to keep me from my destiny. And he's like, "It's no mortal man you should fear." So who now? Anybody got any ideas what that means? Because I know it sure as hell better not mean it's not a mortal man because it's an orc who's going to headbutt your. No, I, I think they're referring to friend Carl Friends. He's no ascended. longer mortal, right? Or go ahead, Chris. I've I, I've heard various theories that people think he might just actually just be Sigma now, which I don't I don't like the idea of that. Okay, the one thing I was interested about this was because you know. When you take a, a human figure and you elevate them to the position of a god, there's always that question of, are they really a god or are you just worshipping them as such? And I've always wondered that about Sigmar. Sigmar sort of walked off on his own and you never heard from him again. And he's more of a legend. I mean, he always seems to be more of a heroic legend than an actual god. But here, right before Carol Friends, Carl Friends dies, he screams out to... Sigmar, Sigmar, and the sky tears open, and a freaking twin-tailed comet comes down and blasts him back into life. So it's like, oh, is Sigmar really a god? I mean, that that was not Ulrich doing that. So it's like, ooh, maybe he is really a god. Um, I hope he's not Sigmar reincarnate, but I am kind of wondering where the hell Valton is in all this, too. Yeah, I found it, it's, it's weird because everything Carl Franz is doing is what sort of I expected Valton to be doing, mm-hmm. but then I suppose that's from my preconceptions due to what happened in the storm of uh, chaos but yeah volton's been completely missing from this book but maybe he is going to come back in uh, to face archon but then i can't see that with with what they've done with, with carl franz here so yeah well that's i was i was assuming volton's going to show up for archon as well too because i mean he still has galmarez it's got to show up he's got to come back with it if nothing else to give it back to to the emperor but he doesn't need it. The thing he's got is better. Well, yeah, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, I have got some some theories that cross-reference this with Kane, but I, I don't think it's it's the time to to, to mention that now. Um, I mean, I think from from the three books, obviously Nagash, there was some theorizing to be done, and Kane definitely a lot. This one's pretty, it, for the most part, I think it's pretty much cut and dry. It tells you the story that you need to know at this point. Um, the only thing, like you say, is this. They, they seem to like these cryptic end passages to the books, which I don't know. I are a bit sort of thought provoking, but um, yeah, I think that's the only thing it could be. If you're saying he's he's no longer mortal, is he because he's ascended, or is it because he's I don't know Sigma reborn or anything? I mean, you look at the picture on the very last page, and it doesn't look what if you looked at that and out of context as a Warhammer fan, you'd probably just say, "Oh, that's that's Sigma," wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, I I thought it was the Emperor, but. Yeah, it's just with that light behind him and that glow. Yeah, it's just it's yeah, right. Yeah, supernatural deity. It's really, like, it's really cool. I'll say that much, and it left it left me very excited for the next uh, for the next book. You know, rules or not, as yeah. far as the story goes, it left me very excited. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this book did. A, I mean, I'm I'm not really any fan of, of Empire, really, and Warhammer or their fluff. But this book's and and the, the last one. The Gash previously with Balthazar Gelt made a very interesting character out of him. And this one, certainly, Hellbug in particular. And even, you, you can't help but go, go, yeah, inside when um, he'll go, Carl Franz goes Super Saiyan and mm-hmm. kicks everyone in. <laughs> Pretty good. Just don't take any uh, steam tanks. Yes. 
Yeah, to all you Empire players, don't take Steam tags. Right. That is- <laughs> that's the lesson here. That's the lesson. It was just, I think, I think overall this book was very cool in, in getting this this story part along here. Um, I've heard some people complain about um, Archeon, you know, not showing up yet. Mm-hmm. But I like the, uh, I, I just like how this is flowing out, how he's taking his time. He's biding his time. He's making sure that, uh, he's making sure that everything is just right. He sent them in. Now they're weakened. Now he's coming. This is actually getting really, dude, this could go for like five or six books almost the way sure. they're going right now. And I mean, it, it, there's still stuff. I mean, we haven't seen half the races in the world, it seems like. You know, I mean, even once you bring the elves into this, you've still got, we've seen nothing from the orcs. Or Skaven. Or Skaven, or ogres. And Lizardmen. What and, happened to them? The Exodus, they left. They were gone. I mean, I hope. That would be so just, that would, I like them so much. Like, it's like they're, 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 they're watching this from orbit. <laughs> on their ship. Yeah. But, uh. I mean, there's just so much still to, to to come. I'm so excited, and the new the new book. Well, when this plays, the new book is supposed to go for pre order about ten days after this releases. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're they're pulling ahead of us. We still have Kane to catch up catch up on. Oh, I know. I'm so excited. And then this fourth book. So beyond excited. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. So but there it is, Glotkin in a nutshell. Yeah, we uh, we 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 promised each ourselves that this one would be one episode. It's only 125 pages with lots of pictures. Speaking of which, how good are the pictures of the models in this book? Like the artwork is great, but it's so good. The, yeah. yeah, it really it really inspires me to want to play some Warhammer games. That's for sure. Exactly, it's very cool. So, all right, folks. Uh, hey. Merry Christmas for those of you who celebrate as this is the time and happy new year to you all as well. And uh we will be back in January with a new new episode of uh Garage Hammer that is not Kane. We're not ready yet. Dude, I read like the first three pages. You want you want some full on coverage, you're gonna have to give us time. <laughs> well that's okay. I mean I do I do feel like I maybe didn't contribute as much as as a, as maybe I would have liked this time, but um, I'm definitely all ready for Kane. I was a bit over the place there, but yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to chatting. Yeah, you're probably gonna have to shut me up on that one. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm not too worried to about your brain. We're prob- <laughs> that one. That one. I'm thinking though. I am probably thinking we're gonna break into two episodes because it is yeah. a big book and there's a lot going on. So as long as we can find the times, Chris, we'll get you on for both of those and in there. Definitely, I think there's there's a lot more sort of reading between the lines that, that can be done in that one. I think if you're so inclined. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, so we're breaking up and not to two episodes just released. Not we're not going to record one long ten hour episode and I'll release it and just couple of over a couple of days, it'll be two full episodes sure. probably. So that way we get some time to breathe in between. Give it its due. Excellent, Chris. Thanks for coming on and recording till two in the morning on a Sunday or on a Monday morning for you. Sorry, we're gonna, you're going to be totally smashed at work tomorrow. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to, to be invited back on. So thanks so much for having me, and um, yeah, hopefully we can do it again. It's been a been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, we'll get in touch with you and talk to you uh, soon. I'll as see we you. Set well, up time for a cane. Absolutely, yeah. yeah Wapaka coming right up. Yeah, one month about a, about a month we'll be seeing you. That's so cool. Don't forget my jelly babies. Yeah, yeah. I will. Yeah. I will pay you. Just get as whatever you can bring. I have money. Jelly babies. So, all right, folks, talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.
You've been listening to Garage Hammer. If you like the show, we invite you to join the Garage Hammer community by joining our forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or our Facebook page, Garage Hammer Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. Follow David at Garage Hammer and follow Chris at Topher Chris U. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach David through David at garagehammer.net. You can reach me, that's Chris, through Chris U at garagehammer.net. And you can reach both of us through garagehammer at live.com. If you want to help support Garage Hammer, check the support page or the show store on our website, or leave us a positive review on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The skies of the Arctic North swirled and swam, looking to those beneath like a painter's oils tipped into a whirlpool. To the teeming armies gazing up at the kaleidoscopic worlds, the color guys signaled only change. To the ever-chosen, however, they spoke directly. A pair of avian heads that leered from high above. And low, sneered one of the two-beaked visages. The mirage's voice was the crackle of guttering flame. The second power of Nurgle did exhaust itself, just as we foretold it would. Beat at the last by the acts of mortal men. The triplets achieved everything I commanded of them and more. Archeon called up to the demons in the skies. The Empire of Liars is weakened to the point of collapse. That the Glodgen were banished by the hands of the Southern Emperor matters little. It is mine, and mine alone, to land the final blow. Is that so, little puppeteer? Cackled the demon's second head, the echoing laughter the threat of firestorms yet to come. Yet the path ahead shall still be... fraught. The way is prepared, Fate Weaver. My sworn legions depart in numbers even you would struggle to count. The sky swirled, and the twin heads regarded each other for a moment in silent communion. If their beaks could be said to smile, smile they did. The realms of elf, dwarf, and man look to their own defense. Continued Archeon, his tone defiant. United, they had a chance, but they stand divided. They shall fall. The elder races have been far from idle. Snapped the first head. They have harnessed the great ethers once more. They have stolen from Great Siege himself. Desperation. Said Archeon. They have played their hand and have been found wanting. The Empire will fall and the rest of the world will follow it. There can be no deflecting the doom at hand. Not this time. Lance shall burn. Agreed the second head, nodding sagely. Gods shall die. This much we have seen ever chosen. It will take more than the princing of the South to keep me from my destiny. Growled Archeon, his eyes narrowing. The prophet in the sky shimmered, spiraled, and faded, its parting words fizzing to nothingness on the Arctic winds. It is no more man than you should fear. fear.